Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, February 21st, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Josh, you'll do better at this than I am, or than I will. What is the schedule today? I mean, we didn't work, well, we didn't We didn't do a live show on Monday. We did one yesterday. Today's Wednesday. We normally have Drew and some others on thir- uh, Thursday, but you said that Drew couldn't come on tomorrow so he may come on today. We reached out to Kahaley. He's semi-scheduled to appear at 9 o'clock, um, but he's under the weather. Robert's had about a two-week-long flu. I mean, he has, and he's been under the weather, but he's still texting. Um, still texting, not talking too much. <laughs> I've been on that Mario Barra-Roma show as much as he normally is. Uh, but anyway, what, what is the latest on who will be on the show today and, um, and what we can expect? So you pretty much covered it. Drew McKissick normally uh, calls in on Thursdays. He's appearing today at his regular time, but just today instead of tomorrow. Robert Kahaley is, like you said, scheduled to appear at 9.05, but he texted me last night while I was asleep saying he wasn't feeling good. He still wants to give it a shot, but he'll let me know around 8. He gave you, he'll still give it a shot. Oh, my aching behind. <laughs> so Kahaley texted Josh the night before to let him know, I'll give it all I got, Josh. I'll try to get a good night's sleep tonight, and I'll try to get up by 9 in the morning and, and be on the radio. I'll give it all I've got, Josh. That's who I am. That's what I'm about. I'm a gamer. I mean, I, I am, I'm Lou Gehrig and Cal Ripken and, and, and Brett Favre combined into one. Wow. Okay. Um. We'll, we'll, I just hope Haley does call in. At if, if he does show up, that means you will be more appreciative of his effort to be here. That's but, it. But to 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 text Josh the <laughs> night before, telling him, why don't you, don't text? Just do it or don't. You know what I mean? <laughs> call at eight thirty and say, "Hey, man, I'm just not able to do this. I don't feel that good." Sounds enough. to me like you're giving being rough on your buddy Haley. Sounds well, I mean, to me I, like it's a it's a professional I'm courtesy. Rough, I'm gonna be even rougher on him if he does call in <laughs> at uh, at nine o'clock. How long does the flu last, dude? I mean, how do you get? I mean, you are the guru. You are the um the data meister. And we're waiting on you to tell us who's going to win South Carolina. Here's what I think. Robert's not sure of the margin. And Robert don't want to put data out there oh. unless he has a lot of confidence in how we got to point A or point B or wherever wherever it is. And, um, I mean, Robert told me the last two times I've talked to him that it's confusing. And I said, what's confusing? Trump's going to win South Carolina. He said, look, dude, you don't do margins. I mean, you don't put data out. I put data out. Robert always told me. You'll be interested in this, Rev. I think I've told you this before. Josh, Robert doesn't poll. You know what Robert does? He provides accurate information to people who are willing to pay for it. He's not a pollster. He 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 provides accurate data to people who are willing to pay large sums of money for that accurate data. It's not just campaign presidential campaigns. I mean, it's um, you know, what is your opinion of ah, this congressman or that senator? How does that I mean, he's always constantly and consistently gathering data that people who are willing to pay for it um, need to make their, you know, business or political propositions uh, more successful. I have a, uh, uh, I don't want to, it's not a moment of personal preference or per- personal privilege, but I need to vent because I'm not doing well today. I got two business partners in my world that have been not just business partners, I mean, obviously, when you co-sign a note to the bank and you buy property and sell property and you do some other, some other things together, there's a trust you build with one another. Um, it's spoken at times. It's unspoken at other times. 
Um, one of the partners keeps all the banking information. I got no idea how much we got in the bank. But you know what I do know, Josh? I know we got what we should have. I got no idea how much we've got in that account. But but I know that we've got every penny we should have as a result of that. Other business partners, more the creative uh, guy. He's um a little bit more like me. He would say, hey, man, see that piece of property? I mean, if you could get a turn lane, a little bit of egress and ingress, knock those trees down, figure out a way to deal with stormwater, there might be an opportunity there. It's kind of a treasure. It's a hidden treasure. Somebody who doesn't do what we do would ride by it and just see a, you know, a, a piece of dirt with trees in a ditch. And somebody who does what we do would go by and say, no, nah, I mean, here's what I see. And here's what I think could happen if we played our, our cards right. So we have these, these added components to the partnership. It's a, it's a friendship. It's a deep, intense, loyal friendship. But it's a partnership. It's a business partnership. When we eat lunch, you know what we do? We talk Gamecock football and racing and kids and grandkids and things, and then we talk business. So it's not that we're just, hey, you know, you got 20 minutes to talk about this. Somebody got an hour, 40 minutes we're talking about some other things, and then we talk business. And I am extremely bothered, agitated, concerned that they're not as angry about the Trump verdict as I am. We had words yesterday. Mm, we never have words. Ooh, really? Uh, about as, as as close to having words as we've ever had. And I had to send an apologetic text about my edginess, you know, how on edge I am about this. And I want I want to reiterate, and this is a good time to say this. I am not a Trump loyalist. I'm an America first loyalist. I, I keep reminding myself of that. My loyalty, I mean, my animus is to the machine. Uh, that, that's, 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 that's painted with a very broad brush. The machine, what do you mean there? I mean, the machine, it's really all those opposed to Trump and willing to go to any extreme measure to stop him from being successful in politics, including financial ruination. I mean, that, they put that on the table now. I mean, it's, you know, I, I said on Facebook Friday or Saturday morning, um, I mean, I, can't, I never imagined, Josh, that, that I would live in America, in a country, that decided at some point in time it was okay to politically persecute in criminal fashion someone running for office that you find unsuitable. I mean, the powerful people in America have decided Trump's unacceptable. We can't have this. I mean, we just cannot have this. Well, damn, what do we do, man? There's a lot of people going to vote for him. I mean, isn't that kind of what democracy is about? Isn't that what a representative republic's about? Dave Baker kind of likes the guy. Josh likes the guy. Ken likes the guy. I don't think Dave or Josh or Ken are bad dudes. I mean, what, 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 are, you, what are you saying? What are you suggesting? Well, I mean, what I'm suggesting is we must stop this under any circumstance. We cannot allow this guy to be president. I'm, I'm not sure I hear you correctly. Well, what are you saying, King Master? I mean, what, what are you saying, uh, you know, Wizard? What, what, are you, what are you saying, Master of the Universe? What, what, what do you mean by we can't allow this guy to get elected again? I, I mean exactly what I said. Well, what, I, 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 I am ready to follow orders if you make the orders more clearly. Find a crime. Find a crime. I mean, the guy's done a lot of complicated things in his life. I'm sure he's crossed a line at least once or twice. Find where he crossed that line and indict him. What, what do you mean? Indict, I, I, I meant what I said. Indict him. Not two times, not five times, not 91 times if that's what it takes. Find everything this guy may or may not have done wrong 
and make him a criminal. Show me the man. I'll find a crime. I mean, that's third world. That's banana republic. That happens in countries that we've been highly critical of over the years. Okay, we found a crime. We believe we can indict him on these 91 offenses, but here's the problem. Here's this other sheet of paper I brought with me. You know what it is? It's political polling. This guy named Robert Cahaley runs Trafalgar, and he says that despite the 91 indictments, Donald Trump's stronger than he's ever been. That can't be the case. And the king of the world, king of America, looks at the paper, and he says, damn, I mean, he is stronger than he's ever been. I mean, he was at 44% pre-91 convictions. Now he's at 65% Republican primary voters. We didn't convince Josh, Dave, and Ken that he's a bad guy. See if there's a way to get him off the ballot. I mean, if the people are still willing to vote for someone who's been indicted 91 times, the only thing we can do is get him off the ballot. So they did. Several state Supreme Courts, several, uh, you know, legislative bodies in several states said Trump's not allowed to be on the, the ballot because he's guilty of inciting an insurrection despite never been charged of inciting an insurrection. Never been charged, never, never been convicted of inciting an insurrection. But they took him off the ballot in several states. Supreme Court appears to be going to side with Trump. I mean, I guess there's some semblance of law and order left in America. The Supreme Court says, what, what do you mean? You, you, can't, you can't take a guy off the ballot into one state in a national federal election. I mean, what stops South Carolina from taking Biden off the ballot? What stops anybody from taking anybody off the ballot if we open up, you know, um, if we open up the can of worms, so to speak? So the courts speak. They go back to the master of the universe, and they say, hey, man, this fairly conservative U.S. Supreme Court looks like they're not going to allow us to take Trump off the ballot. So we tried making him a criminal successfully. He's got 91 indictments. He's got several trials he'll have to deal with. He's got to deal with Fanny and Afani and Alvin Bragg and George Erdogan or whatever his name is, uh, and several states, other states. I mean, there's waiting on pending uh, Florida mishandling classified information, obstructing justice. Uh, you got Jack Smith, special counsel. You know, he's hanging out there somewhere, letting um, Fanny take a load off, fan- take a load off backward dress wearing uh, Fanny Willis. Doesn't appear to be working. So, so we indicted, didn't work. We took him off the ballot or tried to take him off the ballot, didn't work. Let's break him. Let's break him. I mean, the one thing Trump is most proud of is what? Trump organization, Trump enterprises, Trump the company, Trump the corporation. Let's take that from him. What do you mean take that from him? I mean, let's find some way to, 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 to charge him legally in some bad business deal. There's no telling what that guy's done in business. Let's find some bad business deal that he's got in, and let's take his business from him. I mean, let's force him to liquidate what he's invested the majority of his life in, his father before him. Let's take that from him. What do you mean take that from him? Let's issue a fine so severe that he has to liquidate to meet it, or he goes to prison. He gets incarcerated. Guys, that's what we've done. And how every conservative-minded American is not as furious as I am about that is disappointing. It's discouraging. We've lost our zest. We've lost our zeal. We've lost our desire. Forget Trump for a second. I get he's a jerk. I get he's a narcissist. I get he's an egotistical 
New Yorker. I get all that. I, I've, I've accepted all that. It is what it is. It's who we've ended up with. For a generation, we talked about standing up to the man, fighting the man. We knew what the man was doing wasn't fair. Globalism, bad trade deals, endless wars, military-industrial complex dividing up a trillion dollars a year. Did you think Captain Kangaroo was going to be the guy to break the, the stranglehold? Really? I mean, did you think Andy Griffith from Mayberry with Deputy Fife was going to be the guy that shows up and say, hey, there's a new sheriff in town, y'all. And my, my man here's got one bullet. And you break bad. No, we had to have a force of nature. We had to have somebody controversial. We had to have a bullet in the China shop. We had no choice with anybody else. And all of a sudden now, some of the conservative-minded people in America think this is okay. Because Trump's bad. See, they score these luxury points, these, these luxury beliefs. And by that, I mean, if you believe Trump's bad, you probably get um, a better tea time at the country club. If you believe Trump's bad, it's more likely that your kid gets accepted to one of these prestigious universities, especially if you write something. I mean, if you're, if you're a bit dignified and you write how bad Trump is and it posts in the Washington Post or, or New York Times or Wall Street Journal, that, then you got those luxury points. I mean, that, those are beliefs you have. Whether you mean it or not, they're, they're beliefs that are invaluable in polite society. And it, and it concerns me that members of polite society who seem to be or lean somewhat conservative, less government, lower taxes, um, the complexities of government aren't always, nah. I mean, you're nowhere near as furious as you should be. And I told Rev this morning, some of the lawfare shenanigans, I don't completely understand, didn't go to law school, don't have a law degree. I think lawyers are paid to complicate things. I mean, that's why we litigate so much. That's why litigation in America is so expensive. I mean, lawyers are paid to question, doubt, be concerned with, find a way to make even more complicated. That's the nature of the business. Litigation is not passing out lottery tickets. It's confrontational. It's argumentative. It's always been that way. But but the number of people who profess, and you're not somebody, you, you're not most people, you're not to tell most people aren't conservative by the number of times they tell you they are. Well, you know, I'm a conservative, but Trump. Well, I, I you know, I've always been a conservative, but Trump. No, you're not. No, you're not. You, you, you're someone who believed, I mean, you're a member of polite society more than likely, and it was to your advantage to say those sorts of things, and now it's to your advantage to say how disgusted you are with the antics of Donald Trump. Um, I mean, the story should be the New York trial, because I'm telling you guys, Trump's hanging on by thread. I mean, I'm sure of that. I'm, uh, Trump is hanging on by a literal thread. If he can't come up with $354 million dollars in liquid. In other words, if he can't go to the bank, get a cashier check, and pay the fine, he can't appeal in New York. I mean, the appellate process forces you to pay the fine before you can appeal. And we're okay with that. We seem to be not as bothered as I think we should be with that because Trump is a jerk, and he's a narcissist, and he's a blowhard, and you can't tell him a damn thing. Okay, guilty as charged, I think, on most of those accounts. But look at what our government is attempting to do and how some professing conservatives think it's okay. I mean, that's just alarming 
to me. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Roger in Pamplico. Good morning, Roger. Good morning, fellas. In your own uh, rant this morning, and uh, but I think you know the answer to your rant as to why uh, the country is not uh, in an uproar about it. You've said it many, many times before because we're not a serious country anymore. We're more concerned about watching Taylor Swift swig beer at the Super Bowl. You know, that's where we are, unfortunately. Uh, we're more concerned about that than we are anything else as a whole, the country. Now, as far as the Republicans go, uh, taking him off the ballot in primaries, I don't think is a big deal. I think he'll, I think if they succeed in getting him off the ballot in certain states, He'll win a ride-in vote anyway. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's going to succeed. He'll win a ride-in vote. Um, but what it's going to come down to, and I've said this before when I've called, and I really believe this: uh, it's not Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. It's never going to be that. I mean, <laughs> they're going to look at polls by the convention time, and they're going to force this guy out. And uh, I don't think it's going to be Michelle Obama. It's going to be a Gavin Newsom. Now, once again, he's a five-star liberal. He should be easy to beat. But with a Newsom, you take away the dementia. You take away the age. And unfortunately for folks in the middle, those five states that you keep talking about that are watching Seinfeld, that are interested in Taylor Swift, that's all it's going to take. Uh, it's just going to take that because he's articulate. He can speak without stumbling over himself. He can do all this. What scares me most of all, uh, Trump can beat a Joe Biden. I'm not sure he can beat a Gavin Newsom. I just don't uh, with those with those folks. And uh, unfortunately, that's where we are, I think, with the Republican voters. Trump's got the Republican majority of the Republican primary voters. Uh, but he's not going to face Joe Biden in the fall. I mean, I, I'm absolutely convinced of that. He is not, this is not a Trump-Biden race. This is a Trump-Gavin Newsom race. That's that interesting. Changes. But thank, well, thank you, Roger. And, and I got thank friends you. who share that. I mean, Philip talks a lot about that. The, the, the latest word with Newsom, uh, Bill Maher had someone on. Bill Maher had a liberal and a conservative, and they did a typical liberal conservative uh, you know, back and forth. And it was a lady who lives in California and she basically j just uh, loudly and proudly said how bad a failure he's been at government, but he's shiny. I mean, that, that was her word. And I think that's what Roger's saying. <laughs> yeah. He's a shiny candidate. He's young. He's charismatic. He's uh he's nice looking. He wears tailor-made suits. Somebody looks the part. And I mean, I think Roger kind of helped me a little bit because I have said over and over and over and over and over again, we are a very unserious nation. Now, I want to add a caveat. The people that I'm talking about aren't serious. I mean, they're very serious people. They're very capable of being serious. They're very capable of thinking through things that matter and things that, that don't matter. And, and, I, and I'm going to say this. Outside of your faith, family, and friends, what matters more than who's in charge of your nation? I mean, if you live in a prosperous and, and blessed nation, What's more important than its leadership? I mean, I understand you don't wake. I mean, if you've got a kid in, in dire straits or you got a, you know, a, a loved one that's struggling or hurting, I understand that should be most important. I mean, that's close to home. 
I mean, that that's right here. That's that's very intimate in your real world. I'm never saying, hey, forget your dying mom. Forget your sick kid. I mean, Trump needs you to be, uh, you know, ready, able, ready, willing, and able. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not suggesting that politics should play that important a part in your life. But it can't come after Seinfeld. I mean, it can't come after Taylor Swift. I'm sorry. I mean, if we are going to be a responsibly governed nation that requires some degree of seriousness, our political intuitions or inclinations can't be after Seinfeld, after Taylor Swift, after Gamecock basketball, after Clemson football. We just can't do that. At some point in time, there has to be a a, a spiritual rejuvenation of civics, an understanding of a commitment it takes to police ourselves, to govern ourselves and I mean, I, I'm not a founding father, but I got to believe that when the founding fathers put it all together, they said, wow, I wonder how long people will remain vigilant about this. I wonder if ever there will be a day that, that a sitcom and a rock star are more consuming. People pay attention to that more. I mean, I understand watching Seinfeld's fun. Go to a Taylor Swift concert. I got to believe it's fun. Uh, it's, it's F-U-N. Uh, you got to be well-funded to go to a Taylor Swift concert to have fun. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, I mean, uh, let's, let's say it this way, because I read something last night. So in the, in the state of New York, they believe it's okay for someone to stab someone with a knife, but a $1,000 bail is a travesty against justice because you never know where that person may have come from and what that person may have been dealing with. So someone stabs another human being with a with a knife. They want to remove the $1,000 bond or bail because that's a, a travesty against justice. But a man can build a business, take the business his father gave him, add, add to the business, grow the business, make bigger investments in, in the business, deal with banks, arguments and, and negotiations and haggling, and the bank's happy some days and Trump's happy other days. And maybe that's the burden my saddle on this is I have walked in, in much smaller shoes than that, but I've been involved, Rev, pretty much all of my adult life in banking. And I'm talking about the other side of the table. I've never been the guy lending the money. I've always been the guy borrowing the money and trying to figure out a way to pay the money back. And can I get better terms? Can I get a better deal? Can I get, you know, can I get my banker to write out and look and see what I think I see here? I mean, it, it's, it's business. It's business negotiation. And how someone can believe what the New York judge did is okay is unfathomable to me, especially, especially those who profess to have a conservative bias and have historically voted Republican. I know I'm right about this because I'll tell you, I was texting with someone else in politics yesterday. It's when you really think about it, the GOP should be somewhat ashamed of itself. Our most recent presidential nominees, not named Donald Trump, I mean, once deceased, John McCain passed away, but it, it's hard for me to believe. So, so the voters voted for Bush twice. The voters voted for Romney. The voters voted for McCain. I get those years, 08, 012. That would have been McCain in 08, Romney in 12. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the voters voted for McCain in 08. They voted for Romney in 12. Now, it's, it's unfair to, to bunch McCain here because he's passed away, but thumbs down to Obamacare tells me about all I need to know. And his daughter kind of thinks kind of in a weird sort of way speaks for him. So Bush wins the Republican primary. Why? 
because Republican primary voters chose him. McCain wins the Republican primary. Why? Because Republican primary voters chose him. Romney wins the Republican primary. Why? Because Republican primary voters chose him. But the second the Republican primary voter chooses someone they find unacceptable, they're not a Republican anymore. They've never really been Republicans. They just needed millions of useful idiots and a political party to advance a, you know, a, a regime of global globalism, bad trade deals, and endless wars. I mean, that's who they are. That's who the Bushes are. That's who McCain was. That's who Romney is. They're not conservative. I mean, they're, they're political strategists. I mean, they're, they're strategizing inside the bowels of our government on how to advance an agenda that they, you know, enrich themselves on behalf of. So just ask yourself that. I mean, do you feel dumb as a Republican voter that you voted for Bush twice? Well, I guess he ran unopposed in the primary. You voted for uh, McCain. You voted for Romney. And the second you decided to vote for somebody that they find unacceptable, they don't like you anymore. The, the dirty secret is they never liked you. They never liked you. The Bushes never liked you. McCain never liked you. Romney never liked you. They just needed a political party to advance an agenda and millions and millions and millions of useful idiots. And we were those useful idiots until we aren't any longer. And now all of a sudden Bush says, well, I'm not for Trump. I mean, I know he's the nominee, but I'm not for Trump. And Romney says, well, I'm not for Trump. I know he's the nominee. Romney's got another story on MSNBC yesterday. Another reason that he's not for Trump. But, but yet he needed us useful idiots. But the second us useful idiots didn't do what Romney thought we should do, he's no longer a Republican. He's never been a conservative. McCain's never been a conservative. They're interventionist, globalist, self-enriching blowhards. That's who they've always been. That's who they'll always be. So if you got a problem with Trump, but you don't have a problem with them, you may be the hypocrite. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. You're on. Uh, good morning. I think you la- you label those guys pretty good, those blowhards out there. And they really do not care about the American people as such. And I'm, I don't think they even care about the country when it comes right down to it. They just cons- they're, they're just uh, totally consumed with their own self-interest. But uh, the thing that really concerns me is I knew that electrical uh, cars weren't going to work because I didn't see anybody building power plants and stuff. you got to build more power plants if you're going to change everything to electrical. And I don't see them building that uh, the infrastructure that's needed to get out the vote early because if Republicans don't figure out and we we missed the start and gun in 2020 and 20 and 2022 we've got to um, have an infrastructure out there to get the vote out early and I know that was a bad candidate up there in Nassau County but uh, she lost more than she should have lost I I, I feel but uh, you'd have to ask ask Kaleli to, to how, if uh, how well she did but um I, I'm really concerned, and I'm wondering who in the world's doing anything because Ms. McDaniel doesn't seem to be aware that this is a do-or-die type situation whether you can get a Republican early and Trump early vote out. Because thank, you can't wait. Thank, thank you, Mike. Well, I mean, I'll say this. 
the the turnout machine the Democrats have in place is good enough to elect a bad candidate. The turnout machine the Republicans have in place is good enough to elect a good candidate. I mean, bad candidates are hard to, to get elected unless you've got a turnout machine. And I go back to the data. I mean, that, that's an opinion. It's my opinion that the Republican turnout machine isn't good enough to elect a bad candidate. The Democrats is. But when you go back at the data, and I know it by heart now, I mean, Nate Silver, who's kind of Nate Bronze now, I mean, he's done a lot of work on the post-Trump special elections, which they argue, and Kahaley agrees with this, are the best predictives. I mean, it, it, that's all about turnout. I mean, special elections are all about turnout, so that would be the best measure of who really and truly has a turnout machine in place and who doesn't. 33 special elections since Trump rides into town. Of those 33, Democrats were favored in 22. They won every one. Republicans were favored in 11. They only won four. The The collective polling margin is D plus 10. The Democrats won by 21 percentage points on average, so they overperformed polling by 11 percentage points. That's not about good candidate, bad candidate. I mean, I would imagine there's anecdotal evidence out there. Josh was a good candidate. Ken was not. You know, uh, this candidate worked hard. This candidate didn't. This candidate had money. This candidate didn't. This candidate self-funded. This candidate didn't. This candidate was charismatic. This candidate was not. I mean, that always comes into play. But at the end of the day, in the post-COVID era of voting, it's unsupervised mail-in ballots and ballot harvesting. Who can successfully harvest more ballots than the other party. That's where it is. It's not good for democracy. It's just not good for the country. It's not free and fair elections. But because of COVID and some of these states making changes, some states still have those changes on the book. That's what you're dealing with. And I think the Republicans are foolish to believe they can depend on voter turnout in the old fashion when there's this new model that the Democrats have ushered in, and I go back to these 501c3s, these not-for-profits that are focusing on voter turnout, and they have done a, a phenomenal job. Tax-exempt non-for-profits or tax-exempt non-profits, unsupervised mail-in ballots. That's where the focus needs to be. Let's go to the phone. Bobby in Hartsville. Good morning. You're on. Good morning, guys. Um, i got two quick things. Ken, you did a good job of stirring me up this morning and uh i think you should be i think you should uh lead the charge in uh raising some money uh locally here and then uh to go toward uh trump's uh predicament there and send that money straight to him be a good i'd be willing to give i think a lot of people a lot of other people would be willing to give as well and the second thing is uh the money that's given to his campaign can he use that money, some of that money to help him in the situation? I don't think he can use campaign funds to pay a fine. He can use campaign funds to pay legal expenses. That's my understanding. I've never run for federal office, so I don't know what federal law says. I'll ask Drew. Drew will be with us in about an hour, Bobby, and I'll ask Drew McKissick. He knows that world up one side and down the other. I think you can pay legal expenses with campaign funds or contributions, but you can't pay the fine. I hear you. Okay, but I'm serious. You should. Uh, you got a way uh, about you stirring people up. You you should uh, lead the charge and send some money from from little old Florence or 
uh, PD area straight to Trump. Thank you, Bobby. You appreciate that. I told Rev during the break, what we need is for Elon Musk. I mean, Elon's one of these free speech guys. I mean, Elon just seems to me, I mean, I, I keep up with him on Twitter and some of the things he says. I don't think he's a conservative by any stretch. I mean, I think he's a very complicated. I mean, if you sat down and talk politics with Elon, you'd probably pull your hair out one second and pat him on the back the next. I mean, I just think that's who the guy is. He's unbelievably bright, unbelievably entrepreneurial. Um, I mean, obviously successful in many, many aspects of life. But I don't think Elon ascribes to the notions of, of conservatism. I think he aligns with personal liberties and freedoms um, more times than not. But if Elon, I mean, Trump's a wealthy man, but coming up with a half billion dollars is another story. I mean, I don't know anybody that would have a half billion dollars in, in liquid laying around. I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't know billionaires. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, the state of South Carolina has one or two. Uh, if you went to those two people um, and said, hey, I need you to write me a check for a half billion dollars today, and I need it to clear by noon. I don't know that anybody could do that. I mean, I would imagine it's cash flow, it's assets, it's liabilities, it's what the bank statements say, it's money in, money out. Um, it's contingent upon X, Y, or Z. I mean, I've got no idea how financially that sort of world works. But Elon's worth hundreds of billions of dollars. If Elon could sell whatever he needs to share of Tesla or SpaceX and liquidate and send Trump a check for a half billion dollars and say, I need my money back in 90 days and it's 0% interest and the state of New York has no bearing on what deal we negotiated. That's my frustration, guys. I mean, I'm not naive to the fact that they're going after Trump. I mean, you know that. You've listened to me long enough. I knew this was going to be a slog. I knew. I've said it before, and I'll, and I'll say it again. There's no switch on the wall. You don't turn off the old and on with the new. I mean, this was going to be a long, hard journey because you're trying to basically overthrow hostile takeover of one of the major political parties in America that have enjoyed and are very dependent upon that power, that influence, that, that, that affluency that comes along with the power and influence. So I'm being a bit hypocritical here. I mean, I'm the guy that said this is going to be harder than you ever imagined, and I'm the guy frustrated that it's harder than I ever imagined. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised by this, but I still am. You just told me during the break that you actually read the 92-page, what is that, a judgment that the judge in New York uh, wrote yeah, when, yeah, he, when yeah. he decided and announced the mm -hmm. fine? And you read the whole 92 pages? I, I read the entire 92 pages. <laughs> I took a highlighter, and I highlighted some things. Oh, wow. And I can go through this if you'd like. I can, I can bore you endlessly. Um, well, what's the cliff note? He's What'd a you nut. Find? The judge is a nut. He's an absolute nut. It looks like a nut. Um, he basically said, Trump made one confession, Josh, in the entire trial. Trump said that the penthouse apartment he lives in in New York is not as large as they say it is. That sounds like Trump. You know what I mean? My, 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 my New York City penthouse is 13,000 square feet. I think it's 9,000 or 8,000 square feet. So he confessed. But, but, you know, the judge basically said that not only did Trump overvalue some of the properties and, and mislead some of the bankers. Now, forget that bankers don't take Trump at his word. There's no bank in America that is going to take Donald Trump at his word. They're going to send a team of appraisers, and they're going to appraise the property. They're going to be appraisal after appraisal after appraisal. They're going to be negotiation 
on, you know, quarter interest rates, a quarter basis point of interest rate. But Erdogan basically said, I mean, Trump defended every other valuation. He said, you got me. I mean, my apartment's not as big as I said it was. Was that oversight? Was that me trying to be a bigger deal than I really am? I don't know. But, but the judge basically said the reason the fine is so excessive is Trump showed no contrition. And Trump says, I'm not contrite because I'm not misleading. I believe the properties are worth this much. If you look at the 92-page indictment, and, and here's the, and, I, and I've heard a lot of liberal lawyers say, well, Trump's lawyers were so stupid they didn't ask for a jury trial. He, here's the oddity of this. He couldn't. I mean, Trump does not have the ability in this particular state, under these particular circumstances, to ask for a jury trial. It's all about a judge. Now, I don't know how Trump would fare with a jury trial, but but this nut judge, I'm mean, an absolute moron of a nut who has unbelievable authority in these courts in, uh, in America, it, it's bizarre. But no, he says basically that had Trump been contrite and Trump admitted that he cooked his books, that he and the bank were in, you know, kind of in cahoots together, I could have let him off the hook with a little lesser fine. And Trump said, I'm not going to confess because I think the property's worth that much. I think Charles from Lamar yesterday talked about what Limbaugh's house was. And they had Mar-a-Lago, you know, valued at some bizarre, bizarre I mean, crazy low um, Eight, Like estimate. $18 million. But, but I, let's stay there for a second because this, this makes me more furious than trying to indict him of a crime, take him off the ballot. Because I think I understand this more. Take a break back in a few. I'm going to go back to the 92-page opinion, um, the nutty judge in New York. And and, and, I, and I said earlier, and I'll say this again, some of this is lawfare. Some of this is politics. I mean, a lot of it's politics, and I accept that as part of the political game. But, but I think if you're in business and you feel somewhat protected from over-aggressive prosecution by some government agent. I mean, that's always a fear by people in business, Reb. I mean, it's more of a fear today than it's ever been because of the punitive nature of government. But I think the storyline in the, in, in the story of New York, and I'm not talking about uh, the 91 indictments. I'm not talking about getting them off the ballot or not. I'm talking about this particular 92-page opinion that the judge made, and it basically says, I don't care what deal a business owner and a bank make. We get to bless it. I mean, the government of New York gets to bless whether it's a legitimate business deal or not. And that's scary when you come from where I come from, the business world. The fact that a bank can testify and say, we loaned him money, he paid it back. And a judge can say, that's not good enough. That's, to me, a scary proposition in the good old U.S. of A. We have with us this morning a pollster, American Pulse Research and Polling. He's also host of Political Trade Secrets, a podcast, Dustin Olson. Dustin, good morning. How are you? It's great to be here, Ken. How are you doing today? I am doing well. So some are being critical of Governor Nikki Haley as she, I don't know, the sharpening contrast between herself and Donald Trump. I'm arguing that once you get it to a two-person race, I mean, the political strategy has to be to create contrast. And Governor Haley, former Governor Haley, is kind of sort of doing what she must do, Dustin. What say you? Well, I think that is naturally what would happen at this point. The problem is that uh, she's her her favorabilities in the surveys that we've done is is not great. It wasn't even last uh, last fall, and I think she's actually 
only uh, hurting yourself for the future. Um, right now, in one of our last polls, she had a one and a half to one um, unfavorable to favorable rating, which means that she's kind of underwater with uh, Republicans as far as them even liking her. So I don't know what her end game is. Um, as you know, you've seen in the, the real clear um, average of, uh, of polls that uh, they have Trump at 61 percent and, and Governor Haley at 37 percent. So I'm not quite sure what her end game is, but uh, I don't think it's helping her for the future anyway, as far as Republican primary voters go. Dustin, my theory, and I've talked to Drew McKissick about this, and he gives me about 75% of this argument and kind of withholds to 25. I think the Republican Party today finds itself in a position, uh, it, it's a quandary. There's an absolute asymmetrical relationship between the donor class that have historically controlled who the candidates are who gets the funding, the mother's milk of politics, and where the voters are. There's always been somewhat of a misalignment. Voters are here. Donors are there. But I think Nikki and, and Trump are kind of the, 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 the manifestation of this true asymmetrical relationship. The donors clearly have a candidate. The voters clearly have a candidate, and there's a lot more voters than there are donors. That's a really good point, and you can see it, and uh, she's still getting funded. And ultimately, if she's got money in her in her campaign, she can keep going. But uh, I'm curious. I was in uh, South Carolina earlier this week, and uh, and always love uh, seeing family and friends there. But um, it seems like this is actually kind of a, a quieter primary than, than most. It doesn't seem as it's as active because there's only two candidates. I'm curious what you think. Is that, is that kind of your impression? Yeah, I mean, it's been very state? quiet. It's been very uneventful. I mean, I think people I – mean, the, the, the only question is by how big a margin. You know, is it 60-40? I mean, that's kind of the over-under. And I personally think at one point in time, it looked like Nikki was making a few strides, a, a little bit of a gain, and and the, the judge in New York decides to do what he does. It, it's the craziest thing, and you live this much more than I do. It's almost like the worst news Trump has or the worse the news cycle treats Trump, the better he stands in a, in a Republican primary. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I've been around a while, not, not in, a, in a pollster strategist position, but it's like Trump begins to struggle a little bit. He needs bad news, and the media serves him a dose of bad news, and he ascends in the polls. I've never seen anything like it, and I'm like you. I don't know where Nikki goes politically in the future, if you lose your home state by 20, 25 percentage points. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, she has a different uh, game, I guess, than what, what we, we would assume. You know, I, I, uh, I'm really not quite sure, but to the point that you were making before I came on and, uh, and with all the, the news in the last week with the judgment against him in New York, one of the polls that we did in late fall, we did a national poll of all voters, and – 80.2%, that's 80.2% of, of Americans believe that the legal injustice system has a double standard. And that's Democrats, that's Republicans, that's independents. That's across the board. Um, certainly, it's, it's more Republicans than Democrats, but it's a majority of, of both parties. And, uh, and I think that's the background context when we talk about these issues. And I think that's why you know, that bad news actually ends up being good for Donald Trump because people can tell that the fix is in and they know that if it was anybody else, that these things wouldn't be happening. And, uh, and, and I think people, people see it for what it is.
will explain. Dustin, thank you for your time, sir. Have a great day. All right, thank you. Take care. That's kind of interesting. Josh, I want to put you on the spot if you don't mind. So we, we talk about these generational differences. I mean, our generation did X, and your generation has done this. And, you know, we, we think we figured some of these things out, and we struggle with some of these, some of these other things. When, when, he, when Dustin says that 80.2% of Americans believe there's a double standard in the application of justice, I mean, that's a staggering percentage. I mean, in, in the freest country on the planet, 80% of the people who call themselves Americans believe there's a double standard of justice in America, and it can't be the haves and have-nots, because Trump certainly a have. I mean, you can't say, well, I mean, they, you know, my father famously said they didn't nail a Roman to the cross. They nailed a Jew. So, the, you know, the haves and have-nots, but that's not the case here. Trump is as, you ready? Trump is as heavy as there is, right? I mean, he's got a $100 million home in Florida. He's got hundreds of millions of dollars in in real estate. He has a supermodel wife. He has, you know, a business empire. He has, uh, you know, skyscrapers. He has golf courses. I mean, he would be, I mean, if America had aristocratic class, I mean, he would be kind of, sort of, one of them. Um, but 80% of Americans believe there's a kind of a dual justice system in America, and they're not, ba- they can't be basing it on where they treat poor people one way and they treat wealthy people another way. Rev and I grew up believing that. I mean, Rev and I grew up believing, of course. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, if you're rich and can hire a bunch of lawyers, odds are you'll, you know, get a better deal than if you don't have a lot of money and can't hire a bunch of expensive lawyers and don't know how to play the game and, you know, and, and, and kind of game the system a little bit. I mean, I think Rev and I, always believed some of that. And I don't know to what extreme I didn't think, I didn't think, you know, no matter how aristocratic society may or may not be, I never thought that somebody with the right last name could pull a gun and shoot somebody and, and kill them and get off scot-free. I mean, I think they had a better chance to get a better sentence, but all of a sudden 80% of Americans believe there's a two tier justice system and it can't be based on the haves and have nots, but there's gotta be some political persecution involved in here. So, so you're going to live the majority of your adult life, really all of your adult life, in an America where most people are skeptical about the application of justice. Is this about Trump? Or is this something much bigger than Donald Trump? And I'm speaking, I'm asking you to speak for your generation. You ain't Bob Dylan. I mean, you can't speak for a generation. <laughs> I guess I'm being unfair to you in that regard. But what do younger people think of Trump and this Trump phenomenon and, and, you know, the, the unequal applying of justice and the double standards and the, the selective prosecuting. Yeah, so it's an, it's an interesting question because I definitely, me personally, I'm in agreement with you where I think that what's happening to Trump right now is, is dreadful. It's scary. It's a scary prospect for the future of politics and the state of America as it is. But in terms of speaking for the majority of my generation— I'm actually curious about what that statistic implies, because I bet a lot of the people talking about the unequal application of justice in that statistic, not all of them are thinking about Donald Trump. Did he say that? Because I because no, no. I would imagine that, uh, you know, some of them, if 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 they included black Americans in that poll, they probably think it's an unequal uh, distribution of justice to them. But it has um, been unequal. Yes, I mean, we, yes. we just admitted it's been unequal, but it, but it's been impacted by socioeconomics. Yeah, not normally your political persuasions. 
Right. I mean, it's been about do you have money or not? Do you have access to influential people or not? Um, I mean, I, I'll, I'll level with you. I spent the majority of my life with no access to influential people. In 2004, I decided to run for office. Guess what I began to, to have? A little more access to influential people. And by 2010 or 11 or 12, I had pretty good access to influential people. I mean, I don't know that I ever abused it. I think I did exactly what anybody else would do if they had access to influential people. But, Josh, historically, that's been the reason that we've accepted this two-tiered system. Mm-hmm. But, but, but how, okay, here's a better question to ask. How much of this is about Trump from your generation's perspective? I mean, for me this morning, it's all about Trump. I mean, it's 100% right. about Trump. But I host 20 hours of talk radio every week. You would accept, expect me to be kind of hyper-focused on the Trump phenomenon and the unequal application of justice and look at what they're doing to this guy. Wow. I mean, can you believe we live in a free nation that allows these crazy sorts of things to happen? But, but from your perspective, you're right. I mean, if you speak to African-American or somebody who was born poor and stayed poor and never had access to influential people or really, really good law firms, but how much of this is about Trump from your perspective? I would say in my generation alone, I would say maybe 60, 40, 40 being Trump which is not good. Like, I don't, I don't take any pleasure in saying that because I definitely think what is happening to Trump, to Trump is so much more obvious and severe, and people should be afraid by that. But I think a lot of people, uh, you know, the, like, you know, hot take, but people have been so divided up into echo chambers that you get the liberals that they think this is uh, the ends justify the means. They, they may not even think that they think this is a fair application of justice. Let, let me ask the two of you this question. You're, you're, nobody knows the answer. Wonder how many Americans believe that Trump's getting exactly what he deserved. I mean, you've got Trump derangement syndrome. I mean, we've right. seen that All on those display. People. I mean, we, every one of those. I mean, every one of those, they, they'll never confess, but they've got Trump derangement syndrome. I mean, they've got some weirdness about him, some, I don't know, psychological inability to understand it with clarity. In fact, kinda, it kind of justifies their position. See, I told you all along the guy's a crook. But but how many people That's that don't think. have TDS believe that Trump's getting exactly what he deserves? In other words, how many people in America believe, well, you can't tell the bank something's worth X and it's not? I mean, I can imagine some people that have no business understanding at all. I mean, they've never been in business. They're, they, they're not around business people. They don't talk to business people. Business people scare them because they're always a little bit more aggressive and edgy and borrowing money and doing these crazy things, and they're knocking buildings down and building new buildings. I mean, you know the meek and mild. I mean, there's a polite society out there that, that find business people a little bit overboard. I mean, those people make me nervous. I mean, they're, they're aggressive. They're entrepreneurial. I mean, they, they, they do things that they, you know, I don't know if they're taking care of the planet. How many of those people genuinely believe when they hear this story? This, I mean, they'll never read the 92-page um, judge, it's the same people that would trust the government and say, well, hey, if the government's doing that and saying that, then it must be true. There's it's, something it's there. It's the same people that will inject without asking a single question, experimental medication in their arm. And I don't know if y'all saw this yesterday or not. I don't want to tie a vaccine in it, but there is a kind of a, um, a validated research. I mean, it's peer reviewed now that says if you're under the age of 35, you're probably less healthy because you took the vaccine than had you not taken the vaccine. I mean, there's been 
a pretty extensive. I'll, I'll get to the article here. But if you're under the age of 35, remember, we start talking about insurance companies and some of these actuaries. They couldn't figure out why younger people were dying. And they were talking about depression and anxiety and fentanyl and all these. And then, of course, that plays into it substantially. But the insurance companies weren't sold. And they hired these researchers. And the researchers did a lot of data gathering. And the data gathering led them. You're right, fentanyl's killing a lot of young people. Depression, anxiety is real. Suicide is up. We alienated young people. You know, we told them to stay in their room and don't come out for two years. And that had, no, no doubt about it, that had a, a massive effect on society in general. But there's no denying now that if you're a young person, you're more at risk of, of not, not COVID, but a lot of different other ailments because you took the vaccine than had you not taken um, the vaccine. So I, I guess in theory, the anti-vaxxers got it right if we're talking about the subset under the age of 35. But you nailed it, Rev. I mean, it's those who will do exactly what they're told because the government said so. And you scare me a lot more, a lot more than lawbreakers and rule breakers. Take a break. Back in a few. I'm going to read this real quick. The complete lack of of contrition and remorse borders on pathological. You know where that line came from, Josh? The 92-page opinion of Judge Ingeron. Their complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on pathological. Now, remember. The bank testified, and the judge said, did Donald Trump borrow money from your bank? Yes. Did Donald Trump pay the money back? Yes. Did you and Donald Trump agree on an interest rate? Yes. Would you ever loan Donald Trump money again? Yes. Would a similar negotiation on interest rate probably play out the next time you guys did a business transaction? Yes. I mean, it... it, I'm not a scholar by any stretch, but I've always understood that when a man is convicted of a crime or charged with a crime, he has a right to a jury trial. Not in New York. Not under these unique circumstances. They build a trap basically for business people. I mean, that's what they've done. Because you know why, guys? Business people are the hardest people to control. They don't take yes, or excuse me, they don't take no for an answer as easy. They don't roll over and quit. See, that's the, that's the strategy. They'll fight. They'll well, I mean, fight well I mean, they've had to fight. I mean, they've had to fight all their lives to keep their heads above water, to keep the, keep themselves in business. I mean, we learned that during during COVID. I mean, with everything they've got, they have no choice. I mean, their livelihood is at stake. But there are some of you out there, and I find this so alarming, that are okay with the government saying to a bank and a businessman, you didn't run your deal by us first. We don't know anything about business, but something smells here. And we have the ultimate authority, not the bank, not the business guy. Remember, the bank willingly lent money. The business guy paid the money back because he was obligated to. The bank said, we'll loan him money again. I mean, we consider him a good customer. But a judge in New York said, I don't like this business deal. It stinks. It stinks to the point that the bank's not shown any contrition. The business guy hadn't shown any contrition, and the only thing I can do is fine you for nearly everything you've got. 340, 355, now 343 million. I mean, with interest, is 355 million. And I'm telling you, Trump's hanging by a thread. I just sense that. I sense, despite his 
bravado and his brashness. I think Trump is hanging by a thread because you got to have an unbelievable amount of money to have $350 million in liquid just laying around somewhere. Let's go to the phones. Breeze, good morning. You're on the air. You bear with me. When I was uh, talking about a sudden wrestling, I wrestled with a guy named, uh, well, I got to be friends with a guy named Jesse the Body Ventura. And he had a radio show, and he was uh, talking to me. He goes, hey, brother, I think I'm going to run for mayor. I said, what do you mean, Jesse? He goes, this will work, brother. This will work. That's what politics is. This will work, brother. So what he was saying was, this wrestler who never went to college, now he was a UDT Davis Cell guy, he saw that the government and politics and all that was a work. But that in wrestling means it's bony. It's a trick. You see what I'm saying, kid? So this wrestler became mayor and then governor all on a gimmick and a work. And, he, and, and that's what we're seeing. We're being worked. We're being played. And you, you were talking about the COVID thing. Hell, I saw on the Red, 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 what call it, Red Cross website, they want you to tell them if you've been vaccinated or not and by what company. Well, why would they want to know what company? I mean, shouldn't blood be blood? I mean, what's, I mean it don't, you know, nobody used to ask you that before the pandemic. They said, you know, if you gave blood, and, and you know, but now they want to know your vaccination status. I mean, if you got into a car wreck, what kind of blood would you want, kid? Would you want blood for somebody that's been vaccinated or blood for somebody that didn't get vaccinated? Well, you know the answer. I'd rather have blood from somebody who's not been vaccinated. I know. I mean, I mean but again, it's a work. We get played as a work, as a work. And then you even look at, uh, and this was even during the Trump's FDA, uh, they daggled, uh, they're poisonous. They're poisoning us with our food. I mean, uh, you know, that Quaker Oats and oatmeal and, 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 and uh, Cheerios. Hell, I used to think Cheerios was actually good for you. But you start reading up on it, they sprayed the damn, all that stuff with that uh, daggone uh, uh, Roundup. And, you know, they got that Roundup now that, that only kills the wheat, but it don't kill the stuff we eat. <laughs> I mean, say that out loud three times. I mean, man, everywhere you turn, we're being worked, we're being played. And, and I tell you, man, I'm trying to be uh, nice and not trying to be so hateful. But I'll tell you what, man, it is really hard for me to control the natural meat streak and me to want to just get angry and bad and just lash out at this, I mean, at the stupidity of people out there. But you know that Monsanto's, your children are eating it, but hell, it messes up their daggone body to where they can't have kids. You know, you were talking about how everybody's testosterone levels so low. Well, there's any crap like that that's just this, this emasculating the men. And, and either it's for a profit or even it's out of pure evil, and it's probably both. You know what I mean, brother? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. Something else in this um, 92-page decision, the bank is disallowed from lending Trump any money. So if the bank that loaned Trump the money to do all these business endeavors wanted to loan him the money to settle up this this debt so he can appeal. Remember, he can't appeal unless he pays the debt. I mean, that's the New York law. That, that's what blue state government gets you guys. And that's why they're having a mass exodus from New York. And the only saving grace here, and it's going to be generational, but the only saving grace here is we're seeing a mass exodus 
of, of people leaving New York, leaving California, coming to red states, that's going to create a remarkable advantage in the future for the Republican Party. I mean, it really will. I mean, I, I've, I've done the math. I mean, it could be, I mean, at 251 this time with Georgia. I mean, it could be 262 or three this time with Georgia. So if you keep Georgia red, I mean, you could literally, a, a Republican could win the White House in 2032, losing Pennsylvania, losing Michigan, losing Wisconsin, and losing Nevada or Arizona. You could probably win it with one or the other. It really depends on do they do the red states pick up 12 or 10? I mean, I, I, they'll pick up 10 in the next census, the post-COVID. And, it, and as some of these things Breeze is talking about, uh, you know, you can't go to a game unless you get vaccinated. But I want to read this. I mean, I think you'll find this a bit interesting. Um, their complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on pathological. They are accused only of inflating assets, values to make more money. Um, the documents prove this over and over and over again. This is a venial sin. I had to, I had to Google that. That's the part of kind of Christian theology. This is a let's just say this is a forgivable sin, not a mortal sin. Defendants did not commit murder or arson. They did not rob a bank at Good Point. Donald Trump is not Bernie Madoff. I mean, that's in his opinion. Donald Trump is not Bernie Madoff, yet defendants are incapable of admitting the error of their ways. Instead, they adopt a see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil posture that the evidence belies. So, so I want to go back to this. Yet the defendants are incapable of admitting the error of their ways. Says who? Says a judge who's never signed a business deal in his life. So you've got sophisticated bankers. You've got sophisticated businessmen and women. You've got a deal. They haggle over interest rates. They haggle over equity. They haggle over um, the terms and payments. And they, they haggle over all the, everything in that room is a negotiation. Once again, sophisticated businessmen and women, sophisticated bankers, they make a deal. The deal comes to fruition. The businessman borrows money. The bank lends the money. The businessman pays the money back. The judge says, the reason that I'm offering such a substantial fine is the defendants are incapable of admitting the error of their ways. Where's the error? Where's the error? It's called business, moron. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jay in Nichols. Good morning, Jay. You're on. Hey, good morning, guys. How y'all doing? Hey, Jay. Hey. Uh, everybody keeps asking, you know, what can we do about this when something we feel is wrong? I don't know if you're following what the truckers are doing, but uh, it's just went viral that truckers are refusing loads to New York City. Uh, and I think that might get somebody's attention pretty quick when their grocery stores are empty and they can't get gas for their cars. Um, Thank I you, sir. Well, I mean, of course, yeah. I mean, if the truckers do, I mean, if a, if a critical mass of truckers say, I'm not carrying anything in New York City, I mean, they've got a mess on their hands. There's no doubt about it. I mean, that'll be supply and demand. All of a sudden, some other truckers will say, well, I mean, I don't care much for Trump. I mean, Trump doesn't have the vote of every trucker. 
Some truckers are Democrats. Some truckers are union. Some truckers, you know, will, will raise rates. I mean, that's just the nature of commerce and the free market. Um, I mean, to me, the macro of all macros that I have a little bit of confidence and faith in, because at times I get a bit desperate. I mean, if I feel like, wow, man, I mean, I, I can relate to Limbaugh on a much lesser scale. There's nothing I'm saying that matters. I mean, there's nothing I'm doing for 20 hours a, a week that really and truly has an impact or, or an effect. I mean, I, maybe it's therapeutic. Maybe it's cathartic for me. Maybe me getting behind a microphone, yelling and screaming these beliefs I have. Maybe it's all about me. Maybe nobody out there cares uh, as much as I want them to care about what's happening, not to Donald Trump, but to the American judicial system, to the American political system. That's what you got to do. You, you got to, I mean, it's easy to say this is about Trump. And, and, and it, it makes it about him. I mean, there's no, he embraces that. I mean, it is about Trump. I am the greatest thing since, since sliced bread. I am the only person in the universe that matters. So he makes himself, as, you know, an easy target. There's no denying that. I mean, he, even the most ardent Trump supporter has to admit that about Donald Trump. Um, I mean, it's kind of interesting. The only embellishment that he admitted to was the suite or the, the penthouse apartment in New York is not as big as he said it was. And Reb kind of laughed like, well, of course it's not. I mean, of course he said it's bigger than it really is. That's Trump. But this is not about Trump. This is about the American political system, the American judicial system. And when 80% of Americans believe we have a two-tiered system, there's work to be done. And I think Josh asked an interesting question. How many of those 80% are influenced heavily by Trump and what he's going through and what he's having to deal with. I mean, Rev and I have historically believed that. I mean, I'd be one of the 80%, but historically I would have said, of course, I mean, it's about the has and have nots. It's about those who have money and access to influential people and those who do not. Trump has money. Trump has access to influential people. He's a pretty influential guy himself, but he's being persecuted in a way that I've never seen another human being. I mean, I, I've never seen, I mean, I, I never imagined in a million years that I'd sit behind a microphone as a former politician saying, okay, let's write a screenplay for a Hollywood blockbuster and let's say this crazy business guy runs for president and let's say out of nowhere he wins. I mean, he's running against the wife of a former president. I mean, they're politically astute. They're politically connected. I mean, they're, they're, they're ball busters. They don't take gruff from anybody. They'll do whatever it takes to win. But some way, somehow, in the most miraculous fashion, this guy wins. And then they stage a pandemic. And they change all the rules of voting because this guy is kind of a Pied Piper. He's somewhat of a, um, uh, you know, a reverse Robin Hood. And... It, he, they, they figure out a way to beat him in the next presidential election, but he's Jason from Friday the 13th, and he comes back again, and he comes back in 2024. They, they didn't beat him in 16. They did beat him in 20, but they don't want to risk it again. Now, but that's what I've never understood. If you go all the way back to square one, if you say you beat Trump in 20, why would you want to run against him again? Because you don't really believe you beat him. You're not sure you could have beat him without unsupervised mail-in ballots. You're not sure you could have beat him without some of these not-for-profit uh, that drive voter turnout. I'm not accusing anybody of anything. 
But if I beat somebody one time, I have confidence I could beat them again unless I believe I cheated. Unless there's a reason for me to be a little bit concerned about. So, so anyway, in the Hollywood script, this will never happen, but he comes back in 2024 because he's Jason from Friday the 13th. And instead of accepting him as the eventual other party's nominee, you start indicting of crimes. I mean, every president since Reagan has mishandled classified information. Nobody's ever been indicted. In fact, while they're indicting one, we find out the guy that supposedly beat Donald Trump mishandled classified information. Had it in a garage with his Corvette. How'd he get the Corvette? That's another story. Corvette in the garage of a beach house that they bought with the proceeds from the house they sold that formerly belonged to the DuPonts. Hmm. This guy must have been a successful businessman. <laughs> nah, he's in the Senate for 40 years, 50 years. And that's how you get successful. So anyway, um, once this guy established himself or himself as the front runner in the Republican primary, they indict him of 91 crimes. I mean, it, it's everything from hush money for a porn star to mishandling classified information to inciting an insurrection. I mean, they just grab the biggest pile of cow crap you could imagine, and they sling it against the wall, and they figure out where their best chances are of some of that sticking. Anyway, you end up with 91 indictments in three separate states and locales. Um, be three states and yeah, Florida, Georgia, Florida, Georgia. DC's not a state, so a locale. Um, and when you start indicting, he gets stronger. And when you aggressively pursue quote unquote justice, he gets to be a more favorite or more of a favorite in one of the party's primaries. So that's not working. I mean, the 91 indictments aren't working. The handful of bull crap that you throw against the wall isn't working. So let's take him off the ballot. I mean, let's give, in the good old U.S. of A., let's disallow millions and millions and millions of Americans who may want to cast a ballot in this criminal's favor. Let's take his name off the ballot. And they do. I mean, they, they take his name off the ballot. He appeals to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, you can't do that. I mean, someone running for president of the United States, the state of Colorado, can't take his name off the ballot. I mean, that's nonsense. So we didn't beat him by indicting him of crimes. We can't take his name off the ballot. Let's break him. Let's financially ruin him. Yeah, let's do that. Let's go to New York. Where's this crazy law that says someone accused of a crime can't get a jury trial. And let's, let's find the most liberal judge we could that basically said before the trial started, Trump's a criminal. I mean, he's on the record. Before the crime ever started, I mean, he, he's a criminal. Bring him on. We'll, we'll find a crime. And they did. And the crime is that he overvalued properties that the bank appraised and assessed a value of, decided on an interest rate and the amount of money they loaned. He paid every penny of that back. I mean, it's nonsense, guys. It's nonsense, and I think Roger nailed it this morning. It's a reflection of how unserious our nation is. How is every liberty-loving American, love Trump, hate Trump, could give a rat's ass about Trump? How is not every liberty-loving American absolutely beside themselves 
that we're allowing this to happen, not in China, not in Russia. Remember, we lecture to them. We lecture to them about liberties and freedoms and fairness and, and equality. We lecture to the Chinese and the, and the Russians. Look in the mirror, good old U.S. of A. Look in the mirror. It may be about time. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Larry in the PD. Hello, Larry. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Hey, Larry. Hey, so you were talking about, you know, reading that 92-page thing and you just have how this is sort of unprecedented. I don't think it is. I think the problem is it's been happening quietly to a lot of smaller people, and they've just been getting run roughshod over. I think you could probably go to that courthouse and dig up 100 cases like this. They may not have made it quite this far, but it's the same idea, which is it's criminal to be a capitalist. It's criminal to make a profit. It's criminal to do things without the government's blessing. Um, what, what, what kills me is, you know, this hits close because this is the type of work that I'm engaged in is, you know, real estate appraisal and, and valuation. And, and, and I've, I've, I've been on a lot of sides of this. I've been in court, uh, not, not as a plaintiff or as a, as a defendant, but as, a, as an expert witness. And I've seen these things go back and forth. And I've seen the fundamental misunderstanding of the judiciary of how business works. Not, quote, quote, how business is done, but just how it works. You know, I have something you want, you have something I want, let's make a deal. They don't even understand that. And they're trying to enforce these laws on these people. And, I mean, it's like watching a fish ride a bike trying to see a judge understand how a construction loan is done. And I'm just telling you, this is this is not new. This is not unprecedented. It's just that there's so few people that are engaged in business at this level. But that's why people that are engaged in business at this level hate the flipping government. It's not something in their DNA. It's born out of a bad experience. How many times have you got to get bit by a red dog before you don't want to pet a red dog anymore? Interesting. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. And, I mean, Larry's kind of on the inside of that world. I mean, I've thought a lot about Larry. Text with Larry a little bit about some of these things. Um, I'm not. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I spent some time in government as an elected official. But the majority of my time, and I mean this sincerely, was trying to help the constituents, not better empower the government to do X, Y, or Z. And, you know, I don't know how many times this has happened before. I mean, I don't think it's happened to this extreme measure. But, but here's, the, I mean, here's the scary part of it all. Trump doesn't have the final say. The bank doesn't have the final say. The government has the final say. Whether Larry likes it, whether I like it, whether Josh likes it, whether Rev likes it, in the famous words of the great philosopher John Cougar Mellencamp, <laughs> I fight authority and authority always wins. Authority can't win all the time, guys. I mean, that, it, that's the crux of the matter. I mean, we've come to a place in America where the majority of us accept that authority is going to win. Authority has to lose a lot for America to reestablish itself as a believer and lover and entrepreneur and, and, and you know, the, the free market economy and capitalism and all these other sorts of things. And I've never been the guy that says we don't need any guardrails. I mean, I, I don't buy the wild wild. I mean, I can drift off into anarchy in, in some of these fashions, but I'll accept that the government has to have some degree of oversight. Um, but but you got you got a situation in New York, and, and maybe, I mean, maybe the blessing in all of this craziness is people are leaving. 
entrepreneurs, innovators, um, wealth creators. They're leaving California. They're leaving New York. They're going to Florida. They're going to uh, Tennessee. They're coming to South Carolina. They're going to Florida. Maybe that's the beauty in all of this. I mean, if you alienate business, you alienate commerce. Guess what else you alienate? You alienate your tax base. And all of a sudden, you find yourself in a quandary. And I think that's happening right before our very eyes. I mean, you know, I don't know why the retiree moves to South Carolina. I mean, I get it. The weather's better. You don't shovel snow. Uh, the taxes are cheaper. But but I think entrepreneurs and innovators and, and, once again, wealth creators, I think they're beginning to see the writing on the wall. And if I'm thinking about opening a business and I read this Trump decision, New York is at the bottom of the list Stay of away. where I think I need to be. No doubt about it. Take a break. Back in a few. Not being live on the air President's Day already had me goofed up. Now we got Drew instead of a Thursday on a Wednesday, so I'm even more goofed <laughs> up. I am completely and totally out of my schedule. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chair, co-chair of the National Party is with us. Good morning, Drew. How are you? Good morning, sir. I'm sorry to mess up your weekly flow. I know you are, <laughs> and I know you mean that with every fiber of your bit. I got to ask you this now, um, and I'm going to put you on the spot. Who's your favorite? Yeah, Monday was President's Day. Who does Drew McKissick admire as a former American president? Jefferson. There you go. Touche, my Jefferson, friend. Washington, Washington right up at the top with him. I, Jefferson, just because of, uh, you know, ideas, thoughts, you know, philosophy. Uh, you're a very deep thinker. And obviously, you look at the Declaration of Independence. You look at uh, uh, his impact, you know, during the Revolution. You look at his impact afterward. You look at his impact as president. Uh, and then Washington right up there with him, of course, because, you know, as he has been called, the, the indispensable man uh, to the revolution, you know, without which, uh, you know, those ideas or individuals like that, we wouldn't be here. Very well explained. Now, I've argued Washington fought for the revolution. Jefferson fought for the revolution. And um, there you go. Yeah, I, I walked around the state house one day, Drew, when I was there and looked at some of the statues commemorating, you know, some of the founders and great people of America and South Carolina. Never saw a statue where Washington didn't have a sword. And then it kind of dawned on me, wow, okay, that that's, I mean, that he deserves a lot of credit for actually being on the, uh, on the battlefield. Okay, I need you to talk me off the ledge. I mean, normally I am the great advisor. I'm the great confidant. I'm the great, great mind okay. that helps us walk through these sticky situations. Drew, I'm pissed. And I'm genuinely pissed because I'm a business person. And I understand firsthand the negotiations that a business person and a bank have. And I understand you don't just make it up and write it on the back of a napkin. And, and don't, I mean, th there is a very sophisticated process that Donald Trump had to endure to borrow hundreds of millions of dollars from a very worthwhile and noted bank. And a judge in New York who has probably never operated a lemonade stand said it doesn't pass my smell test. Drew, that's not just an insult to the Republican frontrunner. That's an insult to commerce and, and a free market and entrepreneurship in general. What say you? Uh, well, ditto. Uh, and I saw a uh, bit on, uh, let's see, was it CNN? Actually, I think he was over on CNN. Uh, you know, uh, Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary, going on with CNN, you know, the guy from Shark Tank, uh, basically saying, look, I'm not going to do business in New York anymore. I mean, why would any real estate developer at all do business in New York? Every real estate developer does exactly what we're talking about here, which, by the way, was a process with no victims 
and nobody lost money, and the people that he did business with want to do business with him again. Uh, you know, as, as you point out, this is a process that every single business, real estate developers especially, have to go through with banks. You go to the bank, I want to borrow X. Well, what's your collateral? It's this. Well, I think it's worth this. Well, I think it's worth this. And they negotiate and they come to a number. And now, ex post facto, you have a judge who, as you pointed out, I'm sure has no business experience whatsoever, looks at this and goes, well, that's not right. And uh, so you got to pay $350 million in uh, damages to the people. I don't know who you're paying the damages to because they weren't damaged. So that's a good question. And then he tries to rig the the uh, uh, opinion, the result there, with a um, having to put up a bond of the fine plus interest, which I think would amount to $450 million, just to appeal the verdict, by the way. I mean, whoever heard of that? you got to put that all that money up just to appeal, to go get justice somewhere else and say, this judge was wrong. I want a second opinion. I mean, how many people who will walk down the street and knock over a liquor store and then get judged get to appeal and don't have to put up a bond for it? But, Drew, we still have, and this is my greater frustration, if we believe in the fundamentals of the Republican Party, and I know we have infighting, and you've talked about some of this generational infighting. We've had, uh, you know, this episode and another episode. I believe this is bigger than any other. You may not, and others disagree with me, and I certainly respect others' opinions. My frustration is how do you call yourself a Republican and, and, and still not support a guy who is consistently being attacked by our political enemies and our ideological foes? I mean, I just don't understand. I understand yeah. that Trump is complicated, and I understand some Republicans don't care much for his antics, his attitude, his bravado, his brashness, but they try to take him off the ballot. We've got to be opposed to that. They've indicted him with 91 crimes. We've got to be opposed to that. And now they're bringing this charge that may financially end to his, his ruination. And, and there's still some Republicans who say, not yet. I'm not there yet. How can that be? Well, you've got some, uh, I, I guess, a lot of answers to that question. Some obstinate, bullheaded people out there, for one thing. Uh, people who, as you point out, are too focused on the personality and not on the principles, not on the positions, not on the results. Uh, and the things that are truly at stake here, you know, in the country right now, I think that's true. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, also true that uh, uh, you know we are uh, going. To, I don't want you growing, man. You might even call it growing pains. I mean, we're growing our coalition, and that's a fact. I mean, I've seen this. You've seen it here throughout South Carolina. Last three election cycles, definitely, that have all been you know, the best since you know the war the civil war, I mean, in, in terms of our, our growth. Uh, and so along with that comes some growing pains, yes. Uh, but at the end of the day, we have to remember why we're here. We're here not to pick a homecoming queen, not to pick miscongeniality. We're here to affect policy. That's what a political party is for, a group of people who come together around a consensus and nominate candidates so they can win and affect policy along the lines of that consensus. That, that, that's it. That's why we're here. And if you can't wrap your mind around that, and, and then, you know, if you do wrap your mind around that, you still come to a different position about a candidate, okay, fair. That's fine. Uh, but at the end of the day, that's why we're here. And sometimes people forget that. Drew, what can Trump use campaign funds for? Someone asked that question this morning, and I don't want to misspeak. I mean, I think I know vaguely what the answer is but if someone makes a contribution to the trump for president campaign 
he can spend that money on legal fees. Is that correct? I believe that that is the case. And some of this, though, may be tempered. The answer here might be tempered by different types of cases, how they were brought, what gotcha. they they're brought in. Uh, you know, you might need to get a lawyer to answer that question. And this is the, you know, the, the whole problem of getting engaged in politics without the benefit of a lawyer. I yeah, I know that. that. You're speaking to the, <laughs> yeah. you don't have to educate me on that. <laughs> so, so, so the answer is a bit squishy. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I mean, it's, it just, it just really comes down to what, what kind of cases you're talking about, like say ballot cases and so forth. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, you know, business oriented cases, I don't know, personal oriented cases might be different state level versus federal level. Uh, you know, but here's the other thing to remember, you got a lot of different entities out there that will be engaged in all this. You have this personal campaign, you have super PACs, you have the party, you have, uh, you know, joint uh, finance committees that are like, you know, merger committees between all the different entities that raise money collectively. Uh, so the, the money is going to be raised. The money will be there to be spent to do what we need to do to defend our candidates on the ballot, defend our candidates uh, wherever they need to be defended. But here's, you know, here's the thing. If, 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 if you're not able to actually offer the American people a choice, which is what Democrats would like to do, then all of the results everywhere are totally invalidated in the minds of at least half of the American people. Uh, you know, we, the state party, have been involved in a lawsuit for three months now with a uh, you know, Democrat who's been trying to kick Trump off the ballot. Uh, I think we're in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals now. I don't have any doubt that we'll win, but you're just having to go through this garbage and pay money to go through this garbage. Uh, we joined the state of Colorado, uh, of the GOP in Colorado, rather, in their appeal to the Supreme Court. In that case, it's up there now. We're one of 27 state parties that joined them in that effort. Because at the end of the day, we decide, the party decides who our nominee is, period, and when he gets put on the ballot. Now, if you don't want to vote for him, that's fine. But we as a party have a right to put a candidate on the ballot. Drew, I want to get your take on this, and, and I'm looking far into the future. I hardly ever do that, but I'm trying to be a bit visionary here <laughs> for a second. I mean, we're talking about New York. You talked about Kevin O'Leary uh, saying, you know, I wouldn't invest in New York. A lot of people say that about, about California. There's a mass mm -hmm. migration shift in America today. I mean, the South is yep. benefiting. South Carolina, I mean, Jay Jordan, Philip Lowe, and Mike Rickenbaugh were here Friday, and I asked them, are y'all ready to govern a state with 7.5 billion people? Because that's where we're headed. I mean, we're headed to right. a densely populated southern state that that's, was stuck on about 3.5 million people for a long time, and for whatever reason, we're exploding in growth. And a lot of this growth is coming from not necessarily blue states, but blue cities. But, Drew, as a result of that, if Trump held serve this time, the 232 he got last time turns into 235. If Georgia has, you know, cleaned up some of their voting improprieties, he's at 251. I've seen projections post-2030 that show a Republican being able to win the presidency, losing Pennsylvania, losing Michigan, losing Wisconsin, losing either Nevada or Arizona, but because of all the population growth in red states, is, is that something that we plan for? Is that something that we contemplate? How do we how do we look that far? And nobody knows what the future holds, but we rely on these trends, and the trends clearly show that that despite some of the demographic headwinds, 
there's a population mm-hmm. migration tailwind. Fair enough? Yeah, absolutely. So when we look around the country right now, and we do this with voter files. So, you know, we the, the RNC gets the voter files from every state around the country. They update them, put them in the data center. You're overlaying them on all kinds of uh, uh, consumer and uh, demographic information you know, to essentially help us market our party and our candidates better. Well, in the course of that, uh, several times a year, uh, we get an update in South Carolina of our voter file that's broken down uh, by what we call you know, new movers. Partisan. So we don't register by party yet in South Carolina, but somebody moves from Pennsylvania, and they were a registered Republican in Pennsylvania. Okay, we know, okay, this guy... He's a Republican. We need to make sure we get him registered to vote. Well, one of the things I asked them to do was to break that down. Show me the net. So it's one thing to know the new Republican movement. Show me the net number of Republicans versus Democrats that are migrating into South Carolina and in migrating within South Carolina. And I see that map every couple of months. And I can look at the counties around the state and tell you which ones are getting bluer, which ones are getting redder, what the net difference is. And we also look at that map nationally. And what's happening is blue states are getting bluer, red states are getting redder. And the question is, what happens to the purple states? I think they're probably getting a little bit redder. Uh, but the point is, bigger numbers of population, as you point out, are moving to those red states. You know, California's losing people. New York's losing people. When you lose people, you lose congressional seats. You lose electoral votes. Political power moves to where the population goes. Uh, and when you look in the future, if those trends continue, then you're exactly right. You know, We end up probably with another congressional district here the next time the census uh, comes around. That's, that's a strong possibility. So we pick up, we go from nine electoral votes potentially to ten electoral votes. Uh, so the Republican map, as you see it today, would be worth more, electorally speaking, uh, potentially in the future. Last question. You're the state commissioner. I'm a guy with a radio show that yells and screams and, and complains about everything. Um, as chairman of the party, the primary is Saturday. Are we ready for the primary and do you care to tell us what you expect to see happen uh, this Saturday between Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, and Donald Trump? Well, we're definitely ready. Well, Republicans are ready for their time in the spotlight here in South Carolina, no doubt about that. And, you know, Remember, no Republican has gone on to win the White House since 1980 without winning South Carolina, period. Hasn't happened. Uh, why? I think Republicans in South Carolina are representative of Republicans nationally. Social conservatives, economic conservatives, populist conservatives – national security conservatives, a huge percentage of retired veterans, and so forth. We are representative of the Republican National Coalition, if you will, and I think that's why we have that, that perfect track record. Uh, when you look at the polls so far, they've been accurate. Iowa polls, what, within a point or two of being accurate, New Hampshire polls were accurate within, say, two, three. Uh, every poll I've seen here in South Carolina is trending the same way. I expect the polls to be accurate here come Saturday. And, wow. you know, when Saturday's over with, uh, you know, I think you can make a really good case that it ought to be over by the time we count the ballots here in South Carolina. Drew, technically, how do we know how many Democrats, how do we know how many non-Republicans voted in the Republican primary? Well, you know, because you don't register by party yet, so you look at past behavior, past voting behavior. That's the best measure. Uh, but I'll make a prediction to you right now. If you want a prediction for the show here, I'll give you one right now. I think whenever they do exit polls, look for exit polls Saturday. And when they talk to people based on their self-identified partisan affiliation. So since we don't register by party, you just have to ask them. So they'll say, are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? Are you independent? I would project that more self-identified Democrats that may vote in our primary will probably be voting for Donald Trump. That's my prediction. Wow. That's interesting. And I, because I think it's, it's conservative PD Democrats. I got you. Yeah, I got you. Know, you. You know those people. 
Uh, very populist in nature and, and very nationalist yep. economically. Yep. yep. Very, very interesting. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate it, my man. Have a great one. Thank you. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman. That's kind of a neat. I mean, I've heard others say that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the narrative is the Democrats are going to vote for Nikki Haley to stop right. Donald Trump from getting elected. I mean, Drew's privilege is, I mean, I'm sure they get internals that they don't share with the consuming public. But he's led to believe that there will be more Democrats voting for Donald Trump than there will Nikki Haley. And we don't register by party affiliation. You, you kind of take a wild, not a wild guess. That's unfair. You take an educated guess about who crossed over and voted in in the election. That That's interesting because I do think Trump's message resonates with historic Democrats. I'm not talking about liberals. I don't think there's a lot of liberal Democrats in America. I've told a Democrat friend of mine who's in office, I've told him, I said, look, the Trump voter is going to be up for grabs post-Donald Trump. I mean, they're, they're not, they're, they're not, ideal. I mean, I've said this, they're not ideologically driven. They don't read the National Review. They don't subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. They just know that the trade deals and endless wars have not been good for their way of life. And they're looking for all an alternative. And Trump gave them uh, an obvious alternative to um, business as usual. <laughs> we'll take a break. We'll be back in a few. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jim in Florence. Hello, you are on. Hey, good morning. So, Ken, if you go to the frequently asked questions on census.gov, one of the questions is, are unauthorized immigrants included in the resident population count? And the answer is yes. All people, citizens and non-citizens with a usual residence in the United States are included in the resident population for the census. So as long as as long as uh, we have no border and they're pumping these people in from all over the world and they're sending them to Chicago, New York, uh, all over California, that completely negates the 2030 census um, unless we get some rectification at the Supreme Court about what a you know, what the census should count. Um, if the Republican Party, particularly in growing Republican states, is not putting efforts to ensuring every last person in places like Florida, in places like South Carolina, that every last person being counted on that census, um, then it's all a wash. You won't see much change in those electoral college votes. I think, what was it, uh, Florida? There was a big story the last time that Florida uh, got shafted out of, what, one or two congressional seats by the Census Bureau? Because I would imagine they're all a bunch of hacks, too. So this is where immigration plays into this whole thing. Um, And, again, Democrats are playing chess. And I, I don't know, we're playing dominoes, not even checkers. So thank you, Kim. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. I do know that there's a lot of work being done by the Heritage Foundation. The Heritage Foundation has been a historic conservative think tank. I mean, they didn't care much for Trump. I mean, they, they did not care much at all for Trump. This is a reorienting of the Republican Party away from the National Review, Wall Street Journal, you know, George Will, William Buckley, the modern intellectual conservatism that has kind of carried the day in the Republican party. I mean, it would be, I mean, it would be academic in nature. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the majority of thought leaders 
in the uh, in the modern Republican Party would have come from cut from that cloth. I mean, they would have derived their opinions based on some of these think tanks. And I'm talking about Cato and I mean, heritage was very important to that. I'm understanding, and I'm not talking to the guy that runs the Heritage Foundation, but I'm understanding that the Heritage Foundation basically sat down with some of the Trump, uh, not necessarily Trump, but some of the um, some of the top advisors of America First as a political, sustainable uh, movement. I don't want to say ideology. I'm still not sure I'm ready to say that. It's a movement, no question about it. And Heritage bought in, and they are addressing some of the legalities, you, you, nobody believes that Trump's going to dot every I and cross every T when it comes to the uh, the routine-ish nature of politics. I mean, Rev doesn't buy that. Josh doesn't buy that. He'd be the idea concept guy. Wind me up and send me out, and I'll convince the masses of what we need to convince the masses of. But but I've gathered that the Heritage Foundation has taken on about three or four big tasks relating to America First. And one is to get the court to overturn that ruling that illegals do not count as um, respondents in a census. Now, now, when that happens, I don't have any idea. Uh, but you got to believe this court's probably a little more favorable to, to what America Firsters and the Heritage Foundation, in this case, are trying to accomplish. Because there's no doubt that's the Democrat strategy. I mean, the Democrats know they're losing population in these blue cities, so let's pump these blue cities full of illegals. But the blue, the Democrats aren't pumping the blue cities full of illegals. The red state governors are, in essence, taking advantage of their own sanctuary laws, sanctuary city and state laws. They're the ones pumping blue cities full of, full of illegals. Um, and for every one you see on a bus getting off at a hotel, there's probably 100 in the trunk of a car or in the back of a truck, or whatever. I mean, I don't have any idea how they're getting uh, where it is they're getting, but that's that's why the Democrats don't want to secure a border. I mean, that's always been the case. They believe that the majority of those folks will eventually become democratically or democratic-leaning. Um, but you're watching now the strain it's placing on the resources. And some of the blue state governors are saying, look, we can't afford this. I mean, these folks are a tremendous cost and burden to our to our city, and we can't. I mean, we it's it's a it's a vicious cycle that the Democrats have gotten themselves into. But yeah, Jim. I mean, I think we should, as a matter of priority, focus on the question in the census that allows illegal immigrants to be counted, just as you and I uh, would be counted. Because there's no doubt that in the quality of life argument, in the where would I like to live debate, I mean, the red states are winning. I mean, they're winning overwhelmingly. And I think COVID accelerated. That was happening anyway. But COVID has really accelerated that process. And it's not really, it's unfair to say blue states are losing population. It's these population centers. It's these metropolitan areas. It's Los Angeles. It's San Francisco. It's New York. It's it's Chicago. It's Detroit. I mean, these major American cities or just not very appealing places to live any longer. Now, now, in fairness, what if you've got a 100-year-old business in New York that your grandfather started? I mean, you don't just pull that up by the roots. That's not – you don't load that up in the U-Haul and move that to South Carolina or Florida or, or you know, North Carolina or Texas or Tennessee. There, and, you know, some of those folks, I hate to say this, 
they're kind of um i mean if you're a conservative business person in new york you're kind of sort of stuck with radical judges who make unbelievably un-american decisions take a break back in a few 843-661-0937 our number i'm feeling better i mean may, maybe this is for me and not for you i am well, i mean it's good. been it's been what two and a half hours of therapy and I feel better. I don't know if you do, but I had kind of an overwhelming sensation last night about how frustrated I was about what was happening, not to Trump, but to America, to our judicial and political system. The convergence of our judicial and political system was so unfair. I mean, Trump was the guy that is dealing with the responsibility of answering the bail of a corrupt judicial system and a corrupt political system. And, and Rev's asked this question to me a hundred times. I don't know the answer. Could anybody else sustain what Trump has sustained? I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't have any idea. He's a unique dude. I mean, that, that's all I'll say. He is a unique dude. And, um, and it took a very unique dude to stand up to what has come his way. You know, you wonder this. I'll ask this question. Does he stay awake at night worrying about it? I mean, how do you not? I mean, how, if they're trying to take you off the ballot, they're trying to put you in prison, they're trying to bankrupt your business, I mean, if he, he, he apparently has no desire to drink. I mean, when he says I'm a teetotaler, I mean, he must really mean that. Because I can tell you what I'd do. I'd, I'd fall into bourbon. I'd fall into <laughs> bourbon real heavy. Well, if you saw him on the town hall last night with Laura Ingram. But is that a facade? Well, I wonder. But, it, but if it was really affecting you that well, much. He's not a robot. I mean, he's not a Vulcan. He's a real well, exactly. human being. But he, he was calm and collected. Well, I mean, and he, you say that. He he appeared that way. Well, I mean, and that goes to the duck theory. You know what I mean? The duck looks calm and collected till you look under the water, and he's going a million miles an hour, and you wonder if Trump is, is that a facade, and does he stay in the bed at night looking at the ceiling saying, my God, what have I done? Why did I ever decide to run for president? Because I'm telling you guys, his life would be fundamentally different had he not chosen to run for political office. And you also got to consider this. What was the first overture made to Trump to kind of get in line? Donald, you don't want to do this. I mean, look at your wonderful life. Look, look at all the amenities you enjoy that most don't. Do you really want to do this? I mean, do you want to stand up for the hayseeds, hillbillies, and cowboys that may or may not? You see where I'm headed? I mean, I, I just I, that, that's such a curious psychological experiment that I'd like to do. Um, is he at all concerned? Of course he's concerned. I mean, this is real, guys. I mean, he's got to come up with 300 and I mean, it's it's, it's nearly $100,000 a day in interest. I mean, say that out loud. He, it's nearly $100,000 a day in interest that he owes on top of the 340 some odd million dollars. So in 10 days, it'll be another million. In 20 days, $2 million, all because a New York judge said, I don't like the business deal that you and the bank made. That's what this is about. This is not about Cheeto Jesus. This is not about a, uh, a unique political figure. This is not about, um, you know, political rejuvenation. I mean, this is about the political and judicial system in America being so corrupted by those in charge. Let's go to the phone. Bryce in Florence. Hello, Bryce, you're on. 
Hey, um, you hear a lot about the independent voters and how important they are to swing elections. Um, but I would think the number would be a lot higher of those voters that maybe voting isn't priority one on election day. So if, if, if they got a lot of work or if their kids have activities or the weather's not good, they, they may or may not show up to the polls. And I think that's going to be the critical thing. And, and actually, every time Trump gets um, is the victim of these obvious political um things that they're doing to them, I think that actually motivates more of the voters that may not have, have made it to the poll on Election Day. Um, and I think the Democrats have realized how important those voters are, which is why they're pushing everybody to vote early. And what made me think of that is I had a friend that sent me a text the other day, and he said, remember, early voting starts this day and closes this day. And my first thought was, am I going to be in town? Like, can I really justify voting early? Like, and I, and I bet there's a lot of voters, especially conservatives, that think that way, like, well, what if they ask why I'm voting early and I don't have a good reason, whereas Democrats, especially those that may not be as motivated, are kind of conditioned to just do what they're told. So if they're told to vote early, they're going to vote early. If they're told to fill out this ballot and give it to this <laughs> mule or whoever that's going to harvest them and turn them in, they just kind of do what they're told and, and trust whoever's telling them, whereas I feel and this is a broad statement, but more conservatives are going to follow, fall into that, like, is, is this legal to vote early? And, and then when it gets to election day, a lot of other things come up and the lines are long. I, I'm, I'm just, well, it's just one vote. It's not going to matter. So I, I think that's the key thing that, that the Republicans need to focus on is getting more people to the, the places to vote early or, or ways to do that if they feel like they may not have it as their top priority on election day. That's interesting. Thank you, Bryce. Appreciate that. In there, in some of his commentary, I mean, I made some notes here. I'm doing that like crazy. When you guys call, I start making notes about things you say because it matters. I mean, I, I'm, I'm one person. I got the mic, but you have an opinion, and we love it when you call and express. But I'm thinking about this. Bryce is talking about voting and doing it the right way and being honorable and decent. And if you, you know, if you got an excuse, go vote early. If you don't, go vote on, on election day. But that's kind of the way historically we've treated that. I mean, you know, I'm going to be out of town. Okay. Can I vote early? Yeah, sure. You can. Uh, well, I mean, I, I'm not going to be out of town. I just want to go and vote early. Cause I don't want to fight the crowd. I don't want to go there at election day. I don't know if conservatives are more moral than liberals. I'm not ready to say that. Um, that would be an interesting survey morality and ethics and doing the right thing. Um, but, but if voting is the action we take, Josh, how important is political activism? Where should that be in our lives? I mean, I, I'm, I, I said it, and it's so easy to say this. I mean, you sound like a political candidate. I mean, I'm faith, family, and friends. You know, I mean, genuinely, and I mean that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm probably, well, I'll, I'll be gut level honest. I'm probably family, faith, and friends. I mean, I'm, I'm earthly. I mean, it's hard for me to put the supernatural ahead of my family. I know what I'm called to do. I understand the Christian creed. I understand it's supposed to be faith and family and then other things, but in my world, it's family, that's earthly, that's real, that's fleshy, that's personal. I, I have, I see, I do, I want to be with, I care about. So, so mine would be, uh, maybe I'm less of a Christian than you are, but mine would be family and then my faith, my eternal existence, where that is, 
uh, what I'm beholden to, what I owe society, what I owe my fellow man. Am I good and decent person? Uh, do I believe in, in a savior? You know, I mean, I, and, and I, and I, I stew on that every day. I mean, I don't sit down at four Oh five every afternoon and dedicate 10 minutes of my life to better pursue my spiritual well-being, but I do it perpetually. I'm always thinking about, you know, my, my family, when my family gets a blessing, we recently had a blessing and, and I thank God. I mean, I, I know that all good things come from above. So I thank God. I don't care if it's four Oh five on Tuesday afternoon. I don't care if I'm in Sunday school or not. I mean, I thank God. So God is a big part of my daily activities and existence. Where should political activism be? I mean, if, if family, faith, and friends, and, and I think Rev knows this, Rev's a friend. If Rev called me, I don't think he believes he'd have to call me twice. And I probably am mm-hmm. such a good or bad friend that if Rev called and said, hey, man, you're not going to believe this, but I just killed somebody and I don't know what to do. And I'd say, well, let's bury the body for a day or two, and then we'll figure it out. I mean, I, I admit I'm probably that good or bad a friend. I'll let you decide you know, whether whether that's good or bad. Um, but where should political activism be? I mean, if it's faith and family and friends and job and providing, you know, where where should political activism land in the grand scheme of things? It, it can't be just neglected, can it? I mean, you can't vote. Can you vote with absolute zero degree of political activism? You feel like it's your public service. I mean, you, you know, you want to be a good person, a good patriot. You want to be a good citizen. So you go vote. You really don't know why you vote because you don't care anything about politics. In fact, some of these damn rallies are getting in the way of Seinfeld. <laughs> you know, they're having... Uh, an election on the same day the Gamecocks and Tigers are playing basketball. How dare they do that? Do they not understand that Saturdays in February are college basketball? You see where I'm headed? Where should political activism be in our in our lives in the grand scheme of things? Take a break. Back in a few. We're back. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Sam and Cross Hill. Hi, Sam. You're on. Uh, good morning, fellas. Uh, I got to tell you, Ken, uh, this morning when the mics went hot for you, you didn't take any pace laps whatsoever. Dave dropped the green flag, and you were off and running, <laughs> and I thought after a while, I am sure glad he's in good health because his <laughs> blood pressure is probably as high as, high as mine right now. But I agree with you 100%. I'm also glad that, that one of your previous callers raised that issue about illegal immigration and the effect on the census. Yeah, I, I sort of that. I was thinking about that, and he raised that question, and and I, I that would be a concern I, I'd have too. We're not going to get the gains that we think we might get as a result of the migration, unless we but, get the law changed. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm really calling you about is I actually early voted yesterday in in up here in the upstate where I live, and I went in about lunchtime, and I, went, I walked in. I was the only one there because uh, I was uh, I was I was close to the to the place where we could do that. So I walk in and the guy says, oh, you, are you here to vote, early early vote? And I said, no, I'm here to order pizza because it's about lunchtime. <laughs> so, we had, so we had a good time with that. And, and um, all he asked me was, uh, let me see your, your, voter, your ID. And saw the ID and that was it. And it, was, it went smooth and sweet. But there was an advisory question on this ballot, and this is what I'm really calling about. And it says, and I think it says, should South Carolina either require or allow uh, voter uh, party affiliation with voter registration? In other words, when you register, 
should they require that you note a party, Democrat or Republican? Are you aware of that? Are you? What's that about? Yeah, I mean that that's basically closing the primaries. I mean, you can't vote in the Republican primary unless you're a registered Republican. That's the question they're asking the the citizens of South Carolina. Is that what you want? What are, what, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I mean, I, I can depends on who pays me, uh, who I'm <laughs> consulting for. Um, I mean, I like the that's idea honest. of Republicans choosing selecting their nominee, but I also like the idea of being an inviting party and being an inclusive party and deciding, I mean, to me, you're long-term, I'd probably rather it stay open. I mean, I understand. I don't like Democrats picking my, you know, nominee and I don't like independents not declaring what they are or are not, but I want a big party. I want to be an inviting party. I want to be an inclusive party. I want to be a dominating party. I want to win a bunch of elections and I think closing the primary almost appears to be a little bit snobby. So we can't be well, one of you. And um, well, how, how would that affect the independents if you were an independent? Well, I mean, if you don't register as a, as a Republican, you can't vote in the Republican primary. It's my understanding. Now, there may be some watered-down versions of that that leaves independents out there floating around in the ether. I don't know the answer to that. So if you want to hold on, we got to take a hard break back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I do have friends in the world because they asked me during the break, hey, man, you're real worked up today. I mean, is there anything we can do for you? And I said, well, unless you got a bag of weed, <laughs> play Thunder Road. <laughs> Neither had a bag of weed, so we played Thunder Road. So, so you feel thanks better? To, yeah, I mean, we're, we're on the same team here. So, yeah, that, that was a bit therapeutic. Um, every now and then, one of these issues really grabs hold of me. And I can envision myself dealing with something similar to that. I mean, I, once again, guys, I am not a lawyer. You know that. I am not a scholar. You know that. And a lot of these arguments are political theories and, and economic theories and judicial theories. This is not a theory. I know exactly how this world happens because I participated in all of my adult life, in, in my family business, in my post-family business life. We're always dealing with banks and there's a negotiation that always happens between the lending institution and the businessman or woman who tries to get the bank to buy into that notion or idea that, and it's collateral, it's, it's terms, it's repayments. It's, I mean, there are a lot of it's appraisals. It's, I mean, it's, I mean, there's so many things that go into this. And if you don't live it, it can get a bit complicated and sophisticated but I've lived it and I understand it and the egregious nature of what this judge has done in my humble opinion. I mean, forget inexcusable. It's un-American. I mean, it's un-American for a bureaucrat working for the government to tell a bank and a client, you can't make that deal because I don't approve uh, of some of the fabrications or not included in that deal. And if we had become comfortable with that, I mean, if, 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 if a high percentage of Americans are okay with a judge in New York deciding what sort of deal a bank and business guy can make or not, then we're not the America that I grew up in. We're just simply not. And if we're that wussified that you're afraid to speak out against that for fear of some sort of, um, I don't know, I mean, I guess there'll be some accounting, uh, you know, you lose a little bit of your social standing you um, you know, you, you you have these extreme opinions. It's far more extreme to accept that 
ruling by the judge in New York than it is to not. And you have, to, you have to consider this. If they'll do it to Trump, and we know what the motivations are, but if they'll do it to Trump, what would stop them from doing it to you? Well, I mean, but if I were if I were on their side of the aisle and I could get away with this, I would do it every day. I mean, I would just banish conservatism and limited government from the planet. I would just abolish. I mean, who wouldn't be afraid to be a Republican? I mean, think about this. If you're if you're advocating for small government and those inside the government will go to that extreme measure to teach you a lesson, you'd be a moron to remain a Republican. Let's go to the phone. Uh, Sam and Cross Hill, I think you hung on through the break. You still there? Yeah, I, I am. I, and I'll, I'll, I'll get off here in just a minute, but um, there's, another, there's another issue on the advisory questions. There were three advisory questions, and the second one had to do with judges and transparency, which to me was a pretty common sense kind of suggestion. But uh, also yesterday, Ken, after I uh, early voted, I headed to one of our favorite fast food places, and what I tell you, you'll re- realize who it was. So I went in there, and I had not had a Big Mac meal in several years. So I went in there and got me a Big Mac meal, Big Mac, order fries, and a drink. When they rang that up, $10.99 for a Big Mac meal. At, uh, got a deal. Food. So I, I was thinking about your $14, $15 uh, chicken strips <laughs> that you and your wife had the other Saturday morning down at the beach. So it is, it is an outrage, uh, the prices this kind of stuff. So anyway, enjoying the show this morning. Keep it up. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. Let's play the flip side of that. So I stopped this morning and I ain't broke. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a wealthy man, but I ain't broke. And I've been very blessed in my life to do kind of sort of what I wanted to do. As I get older, I don't want to do as much. I I mean that sincerely. I just don't, I'm not interested in traveling the world. I, I don't have a taste for the arts. Um, I guess I've got a weakness in, in indulging, I mean, it would be Springsteen and Gamecock football. I mean, if someone said, hey, man, what have you ever spent money that is hard to defend? Springsteen tickets at Madison Square Garden would be number one on the list. And I'm so stupid, we tried to do it again. But dynamic scoring got it, or dynamic pricing, pricing got it yeah. the way. Rev is kind of chuckling. He remembers that. Oh, yeah. We saw it live and in living color. But I saw you the moment you made the decision, oh, I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. I mean, I, I, that. I, mean I, I had a little money in the bank. I can't do that. I can't pay two grand. For a Springsteen test. I just can't do that. I mean, my dad would come out of the grave and get me if, if, he's, if he knew I'd done something uh, like that. But I walked in a convenience store this morning. Once again, I got these weird routines, and I like a protein shake about midweek. I don't know why. It just makes me feel better. It satiates. It You know, I work out a lot, and protein's a big deal. So I walk into the convenience store this morning, and the protein shake that was three ninety nine a month ago is five seventy nine today, hmm. and I didn't argue with the clerk. I just didn't get it. I mean, I went in the store to get the protein shake. I expected to pay three ninety nine. It was five seventy nine, and I walked out. I said, "Look, I'm not. I'm not. You know, I mean, I don't know if this, there's some principle here. Am I more principled than somebody else? I mean, I just violated my Christian ethic." I mean, I said my family comes before my faith. I mean, I know uh, that that is a violation of my Christian ethic. But um, but I wonder how many. I mean, that's a no sale, right? And, and I'm thinking about how many people walk in there and pay five sixty nine, five seventy nine. I think is what it was. And I'm telling you, a month ago it was three ninety nine. Now a year and a half ago it was two fifty nine. 
I mean, it's just a protein shake, right? I mean, it's just a muscle milk. Our good friends at Pepsi, I think, are the distributors for muscles milk or muscle milk. Um, but it's gone from uh, around the time we had COVID, 259 to 399 to 579. I was a buyer at 299. I was a buyer at 379. I ain't a buyer at 579. I'm just not. I mean, I just walked out of the store and, I mean, I did my, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I mean, nobody hears me. I mumble it under my breath, but it's the, it's the proverbial, damn. <laughs> Ain't think a lot of that. You know, that's what we say in the country, right? right. When, you, when you go and you open the door, and think a lot of that. I don't know how many times good old boys have said that in my world. Did you buy it? No, nah, they thought too much of it. <laughs> I, I told you about my thing in the, the fruit at the grocery store what, last week. I it's said, staggering, oh, I, Rhea. I saw a little, little tub of chopped up pineapple and strawberries. I said, oh, that looks pretty good. I might get that and eat a little like caramel dip for it i said oh man that's that'll be a treat and i picked that thing up and looked at the price it was 9.99 and it was just a small little i mean i know we're talking about drugs price walnuts or pecans i mean have you done that lately i mean that that's a healthy snack pecans and walnuts um i mean are they laced with cocaine i mean right, is there right. cocaine laced peanuts and or pecans and walnuts in grocery stores all over america i mean are we is drug proliferation becoming normal and they're disguising it as cashews and walnuts? And <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. And I just wonder when the consumer says, thank you, but no thank." I mean, we got to eat. I mean, you've got, but you don't have to eat a tub of fruit. Right. I don't have to buy I, I, a I, muscle and, meal. And again, to your point, that was a no sale. I had to put it back. I thought, oh, I can't stand that. I'll tell you what one of my buddies believes. He's in the restaurant business and he's been doing it a long, long time. And he is... I mean, he, I, I, he gets irritated with me and my political extreme. I mean, you know, these these real aggressive opinions I have about – he agrees with most, but he says, dude, you got to – I mean, I, I get it. I mean, I, and I'm with you, but you make me nervous. <laughs> I don't want you flying a, build, a plane into a building one of these days. You make me nervous at how aggressive you are. But he believes that the consolidation of food providers – in other words, I don't want to call names because I'll get in trouble – but there's three or four companies in America that control the majority of food. And, I mean, car washes are optional. I mean, a cold beer is optional. A cup of coffee is optional. We got to eat. I mean, we, we got to have food to sustain ourselves. And he believes that it started about 20 years ago and the consolidation of people who basically sell food to restaurants and grocery stores and whatnot have just monopolized food in general. And they have controlled the pricing. I mean, they're in cahoots. Collusion, I guess, would be the um, the legal word. And, I mean, they, you know, they just take advantage. And he talks about, you know, when, when COVID hit, the price of this went up 60%. Now it's down 40%. But the price of of that product hadn't gone down. I mean, the, the, the commodity that makes that food, in other words, butter or milk or oil or vet, you know what I mean? Some of these ingredients have gone down significantly, but the price of the product has not. Um, that, and that, I think that's where, isn't that kind of where we disagreed with Limbaugh a little bit? I mean, he would give corporate America 100% cover. You know, it's the free market. It's consumerism. Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll buy that. It's consumerism. It's the free market. But at what point in time is it unhealthy greed? I mean, at what point in time do uh, I mean, if you got a hundred food companies and they're all competing with one another in grocery stores and restaurants, but instead of a hundred, you've got three 
and the three get together at a golf course in Augusta and say, hey, what, what are you thinking about charging for beef next year? I don't know. What you thinking about charging for beef next year? Don't know. Well, I mean, there's price setting. They're price yeah, rigging. Well, collusion. Sure they are. And, um, and he believes with every fiber of his being that that's exactly what has happened, and you can't put the food back down. I mean, certain foods we got to buy to sustain ourselves and keep our, our families healthy. And he just says, you know, there used to be 100 food companies. Now there are three, and they set the price. And when you give them an excuse to raise the price, they'll take advantage of it. And when, you, when, when the reason seems to be apparent of why you need to kind of bring it back down to where it was, it never does. Let's go to the phone. Michael in Florence. Hi, Michael. You're on the air. Yeah, I've been hanging on for a while. It's just earlier when you guys were talking about, um, you know, the the blue cities. And, and, I mean, we have the immigrants here. We have immigrants beating up the cops. Uh, We've got businesses leaving. A lot of vacant real estate uh, that was vacant went vacant during COVID. And a lot of those companies said, you know what, we don't need to rent that expensive office space. So there's all this, you know, expensive office space that nobody wants to rent. Now they're, you know, going after one of the major developers of New York City. And it just got me thinking about an old uh, movie, Escape from New York. And it just kind of makes me wonder if when they made that movie, if, uh, you know, if the guy who wrote it really realized how prophetic it was. I mean, the only thing missing is they haven't built a wall around New York yet and, and just, you know, throw the other criminals in over the wall. Thank you. Appreciate that. You know, I've often said that the the ideology, Josh, behind America First, the bumper sticker, if you will, is a uh, a set of policies that empower the American worker, the American family, and the American way of life. Now, that's clichéic. I'll accept that. That's bumper sticker. That's television ads. That's you know a candidate closing his speech with that romantic, nostalgic look back at Americana that we all romance about, and not we all, but some of us romance about. The other priority would be small business. I mean, how do we enable small business to be more competitive? Um, somebody would say, well, I mean, you're, you're tinkering around with, with, with capitalism. Yeah, I am. Uh, no doubt about it. It's been tinkered around with before, hasn't it? I mean, when I was in Columbia, we always called pulling up the ladder. In other words, a, 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 big, uh, a big company would get a policy passed or get an advantage in the marketplace, and then they would pull up the ladder. I mean, they, they passed another set of policies that kind of rigged the game very much to their advantage. And I think the better small business does in America and the, le- ah, the less complicated government makes their world, the better opportunities are provided. I mean, one of the concerning stats I see as I go in some of these polls, and Pew does, Pew Research does a lot of studies here, the number of small business startups outside Silicon Valley. I mean, when you look at tech, I mean, there's no doubt that tech has been, I, I don't know, the, the, the latest iteration of the industrial revolution has been tech and innovation. Um, and that's entrepreneurship. I mean, there, there's, I'm not denying that. I'm not, not denying any of that. I mean, it's, it's celebrated. It's been very lucrative. Uh, it, it would be, I mean, you know, in the day of the industrial revolution, someone made an enormous fortune in railroads and Henry Ford and Ford Motor Company revolutionizing the the auto industry, Carnegie and Steel and construction and engineering and whatnot. 
I mean, I guess in recent times, it would be the, the tech revolution that has happened. Um, you know, digital computer automation technology. I mean, that that's been very lucrative in that part of the world, but the majority of businesses outside of tech have failed by that. I mean, small business startups, it's a, it's at an all time low. And I got to believe, I mean, I think about this a lot. My dad started a business in 1963. Would my dad be successful starting a truck body manufacturing business in a town with no stoplight in 2024? No. I mean, it would be a lot more difficult and complicated because a lot of my animus toward government is a byproduct of my dad (laughs) being so mad with government every day, demanding things of his business, insisting things of his business, requiring things of his business. And, I mean, if it was that complicated in 63, 73, 83, 93, 2003, and and I guess, Rev, the thing that gets me so worked up is how little resistance there's been, how willing the majority of Americans have been in accepting that this is just the way things are. And I'm not going to get too worked up about it. I'm not going to get too angry about it. I'm going to watch Seinfeld. I'm going to ball game. Why would I fight authority? Yeah, I'm, you know, that's right. Authority always wins. But, and I get that. But but can we can we maintain our standing yeah. Yeah. We're if not, authority we're not for it. Is, 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 is wanting to control private enterprise and the majority of people have decided it's too risky to defend private enterprise? I mean, that, that's kind of, I mean, that's one of the, the cruxes of where we find ourselves today. Let's take a break. We ran long back in a few. I don't think Josh knows that, but that's 10th <laughs> Avenue freeze out. Right. Did you know that, Josh? I did not. I didn't think you did. I didn't think you did. You know the one you played a lot recently is Badlands? I did not. I didn't think you did. Rev does. Because Rev kind of like, okay. I do the old eye roll when yeah, I hear it again. That one came up in rotation. But I thought maybe Josh was doing it on purpose. I don't think help, he is. I, I, I don't think he therapy knows. for you. You know, he played Thunder Road for you in the last segment. I think he kind of likes Thunder Road. I did, actually. Yeah. That was actually the first time I'd ever heard it. Really? Uh-huh. It's, and I like I like how it sounded. But uh, Bruce's voice in the beginning sounded a little fake to me. It sounded like someone doing a Bruce Springsteen impression. Really? To me, it did. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, Bruce is not known for his. I mean, Bruce and Celine Dion wouldn't get the same sort of acclaim. Fair enough. <laughs> That's I mean, fair. Celine would be a great vocalist. Bruce right. would be a great songwriter. Um, yeah. <laughs> what was that look? Rev, I don't think you can even deny that. I think you embarrass yourself when you when you question whether or not he's a great songwriter. If, if it's if it's the if it's the kind of music you like, then no, yeah, no, 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 we're not, no, 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 we're, we're not going to distinguish one from the stuff. other. Oh, okay, I, I'm going to get you on the record. Okay, or are you arguing <laughs> in some weird way that Springsteen's not a great songwriter? We're not talking about vocals, right? We're not talking about right. what you like or don't like. Or are you really arguing that Springsteen is not one of the better songwriters of our generation? Um, well, I, I have to admit he's written some hits. Oh, he's, hits. he's written, he's written there, hits. There you go. See, and, and, I mean, the truth is prevailing here. Yeah. Rev is a big fan. You ready, Josh? We're talking about the unserious America. We're talking about <laughs> why we are in the mess we're in, why we're as screwed up as we are. Well, well demonstration number one, Rev wants hits. He doesn't yeah. want serious we lyrics. Play, we play the hits. He, he, do, he doesn't want um he don't want music that matters. Mm-hmm. He wants hits. He wants to giggle and stamp 
tap his foot a little bit <laughs> to some of the uh, some of the music of his of our times. Um, I do want to say I think because I'm not a big fan of of either the Beatles or or Springsteen, but I have to say I think Spring Springsteen is slightly better than the Beatles. Wow. Yeah, that, that, the Beatles have more hits, Josh. But that doesn't make it objectively Josh. good, Josh. Yes, <laughs> I'll say this. I mean, I'll, I'll, this is the most reasonable thing said in the last two minutes. You oh, ready? Here we go. Lennon, McCartney, and Springsteen are three of the best songwriters of the last hundred years. I mean, that, that's that's accurate. I mean, it doesn't matter what you think, what you believe. Unserious, serious, rock and roll, country, pop, doesn't matter. Those three people are three of the best songwriters in the last hundred years of, of music. I mean, they're not Beethoven or Bach. I mean, they're not arrangers or composers. They're songwriters. And to some degree, they're arrangers and composers. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I, I don't have any problem sharing the stage. When I say Springsteen's a great songwriter, I don't say, period. I mean, there's no other great songwriters. I think Lennon is a great songwriter. I think McCartney is a phenomenal songwriter. Newsflash, I think Prince. I think Prince is one of the, you know, greatest songwriters of our generation. Now, he wrote about things that... I don't find lyrically intriguing. He wrote hits. He, he wrote a lot of hits. I mean, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. But uh, but once again, uh, the reflection, you know, let, let's giggle and pat our foot <laughs> and just vote for somebody. Who gives a rat's rear end who we vote for? It doesn't matter. I mean, let's listen to hits. I mean, bad presidents and hits. Now, I want, I want, to, I want to point <laughs> bad out. Bad politics and hits. I want to make an, an observation here. I want to point this out because what just started this last three-minute to four-minute rant was you made a comment about Springsteen being one of the greatest songwriters, and I went, eh, I just made that sound, and here we go. Yeah. Off what to mean, the races. Get a mean, nerve. So, so what am I to interpret the sound as meaning? Well, I was questioning that statement. Well, you weren't. You were antagonizing. You were instigating. <laughs> That's exactly. You got what you wanted. <laughs> so let's, hey, let, Josh, let's do this. You made a sound when Josh, I Josh, compared Josh, him to the Beatles. Tomorrow, let's call it. Hits and bad presidents. Okay. I mean, it doesn't matter if we have bad presidents. As long as we have hits. As long as we can pat our foot. You know what I mean? As long as we giggle through a song together, it doesn't matter who the president is. Bring on the bangles. Go-go girls. And and who else? I mean, um, That's the go-go's. Yeah. 99 Luff Balloons oh, and Joe Biden. Nina. Yeah, that may, may be. There you go. Yeah. I mean, that's a hit. What did it Big hit. That's a hit. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> I like hits. <laughs> So what? Hey, uh, Michael in Johnsonville is next. Hello, Michael. Hey, good morning, guys. Boy, y'all are y'all are y'all are full of it this morning, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> We're full hey, of it every I morning. Mean, we just trick you most mornings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, look here. I'm a little bit late to the party this morning, but um, and you maybe already covered this, but um, I know y'all watched the uh, the town hall thing last night, um, or I. Uh, I guess, did you watch the town hall thing with I, Trump last night? I did not. Um, Rev informed I me. I didn't know it was on. I mean, I, yeah. I watched a lot of what Nikki had to say yesterday in her state of the race address, but I did not watch the town hall. Rev has given me kind of a briefing, and I've read and watched some of the um, some of the excerpts. Well, I was, you know, I wasn't going to watch it because, you know, I kind of already know who I'm going to vote for. I think it's more trying to appease to the, the independents and maybe some that just hadn't made up their mind yet. But, you know, it just, it just amazed me. You had a caller here a while back in uh, one day last week, and I, I wanted to about rip the radio out the dash and throw it in the um, road. But 
I think his name was Jerry that was real adamant about, you know, Trump was losing his mind just like Biden. Um, but last night, just watching this town hall meeting, I mean, this man is he, – he might say a few things that's a little bit out of the way sometimes, but as far as losing his mind, he's far from that if you compare him to Biden um, just by talking with him. I mean, he's, he's pretty much on point. Um, I, I wish he would lay off a little bit of the I this and I that and all this kind of stuff. But, I mean, that's just politics and wanting to get elected. But um, as far as being in, a, in Biden shape, <laughs> he, is, he is way far from that. But uh, one of the things I wanted to just ask, and maybe, maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't, um, maybe y'all even talked about it, but this money that he's being fined, um, some people are saying that he owns a piece of property. He owns like 30% of a piece of property, and um, the, the other partners have been wanting to buy him out. But his 30% was worth at least $500 million, and he could turn that over. But who gets this fine? If nobody has been, let's, I don't know if this is the right wording, but nobody's been hurt in this situation. The banks last night, even Trump said, you know, they loaned him the money. They knew everything was going on as far as, like, how much it was worth all this. Uh, you know as good as I do, if banks don't think it's worth it, they're not going to loan you the money. Um, and he paid it back 100% without being no delays. Everybody was happy. So now they find him. Who gets that money? Who the state the, the state of New York. Oh, well, how convenient is that? I mean, <laughs> You know, so the shape that New York's in, I, I mean, how convenient is that? So I'm just going to hang up and get y'all's little word on it this morning, and um, y'all have a good day, man. Thank, thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. I mean, but but what you've got to consider, we're, we're dealing with diabolical political actors, but we're not dealing with fools. There's a reason they went after Trump this way. I mean, this is not, let's wake up one morning and go after Donald Trump. I mean, it was very methodical. It was very intentional. They knew he couldn't get a jury trial. They knew to appeal it, he had to come up with the money. They knew that this judge was unbelievably liberal and anti-Trump. I mean, they knew all this. It's not like, wow, man, that was the perfect storm. No. I mean, everything was intentional. Everything was premeditated. Everything went as they planned it to go. They knew the judge was not looking for justice. They knew the judge was a plot to get Trump. And they knew this could potentially cause enormous financial hardship. And it will. I mean, I said earlier, and I'll stand by the comment, whether, no no matter how he looked in the town hall last night, didn't see it, can't comment on it. No matter how he looked, he knows that that this is, I mean, he's in danger. I mean the 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 business empire, the resident, excuse me, the real estate empire that he and his father, his father began. Trump kind of took it off and ran with it. His dad warned him about going to Manhattan. I mean, his dad basically said, "Hey, son, I mean, we're we're Queens guy. We do our thing in Queens. We're I mean, they didn't say this, but he's kind of slum lords. I mean, they had a lot of housing, and I mean, they, there's some issues there. And fair enough. I'm not saying Trump's business record is impeccable, but in this particular ordeal." of overvaluing properties or not, it's a negotiation between sophisticated bankers and sophisticated businessmen and women. But, but rest assured, he's dealing with sophisticated 
political antagonizers. And they know exactly what they're doing. They know how to get at Trump. And they know how to create financial distress within his world. They could care less because Trump didn't respond to some of the overtures that were probably made by the Uniparty. And here we are. And does he sleep well at night? I don't have any idea. I do believe this, Rev. He's going to have a lot of trouble between now and then coming up with half a billion dollars, $400 million. I mean, you know, I don't know what your worth has to be to have $400 million in liquidity. That'd be a good question. How many people on the planet, not in the drug running business, have $400 million in liquidity? I mean, does, does Jeff Bezos have $400 million laying around in a bank account someplace that he can write a check on? Does Elon Musk have that sort of liquidity? I'd say no. Now, Pablo Escobar did. El Chapo did. And I would imagine the drug lords do. But nobody has that sort of liquidity just laying around. Plus, you ready? He can't borrow money from the very bank he paid back to pay the fine because the judge says and the New York General Assembly says that's a violation of state code. Take a break. Back in a few. Uh, 843 A few moments here. Let's go to the phone. Got some callers. David in the PD. Hi, David. You're on. Hey, good morning, Ken. I, hey, I'll give Bruce credit, man. He loved this Roy Orbison. Uh, so that's Thunder Road. Uh, the OJ, Ken, School of Business, you know, back in the day, you would work, save, invent, invest, manufacture, promote, brand, and then you'd profit. Now, Trump, he sort of branded, and I guess he borrowed, and then he developed, and then he profited. But he and the media together profited more probably about the promotion of the brand than anything. And where he made his mistake in a way, he turned on them. So Trump scorned the, the media and the New York system. And just go back to the OG Ken School of Business. The business of America now, to me, is government regulation, uh, the litigation industry, and good Lord, we're witnessing this and its things and funnies today with all this. I mean, think about this debt promotion. That's what these banks are doing, academia, media, social media. Anyway, leave you at that. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. That's kind of an interesting, yeah, the business – of America has become the business of the American government. I mean, that's, I mean, if, if you really think about it, I don't know how to do this, but what if you tracked the success or failure of businesses, the profit and loss of business that is in bed with government and those who aren't, who have gained political favor and those who haven't. And if the way to prosperity in America's private sector is getting in bed with government, then America won't sustain I mean, it'll be England, it'll be France, it'll be Germany, it'll be Italy. I mean, the celebration of business in America is what we've historically depended on to kind of innovate and create and invent, as David said. And if the secret in America today is to kind of get in bed with business, and that seems to be very lucrative, then we're just not America of days gone by. Let's go to the phone. Daphne and Dylan. Hi, Daphne, you're on. Good morning, guys. Oh. I was going to ask the other day when Putin killed his uh, political opponent, uh, I was going to call in that day, and I never could get through. 
But uh, it seems, and I didn't watch the town hall, that Trump uh, thought about the same thing I thought. Now, in America, tell me how uh, the Russian government is different than the U.S. government, uh, specifically the Biden administration and all the agencies. Uh, Putin kills his opponents. Uh, America prosecutes and bankrupts any political person that's against them. And think about this. All the people that dare to speak out against Biden or the administration are targeted. Uh, For instance, the man who was uh, an FBI informant is now under arrest because of the Congress found the memo that had been at the FBI for years and years concerning the bribery that Biden had been doing. Now he's under arrest. Think about Elon Musk. Elon dared to try and expose the truth, and the DOJ went after Elon for discrimination in hiring because they wanted him to hire illegals to work at SpaceX. Uh, the fact that uh, Matt Tahibi and uh, Schillingberg have recently put out a report, that means they will be targeted, even though Elon nor those two guys are conservatives. They will be targeted and they will try to bankrupt them in any way and destroy them, put them in jail, do whatever. And if you don't have enough money to fight back, it's an intimidation process to the ordinary person that you don't go up against uh, the establishment. Uh, we were talking the other day, too, and I think, uh, Ken, that you got off on to the Supreme Court nominees. I was talking about Lindsey Graham uh, rubber-stamping all of Obama's uh, people. The fact is, all the judges in all, and I told you they put them in strategic positions throughout America when Obama was president. As a matter of fact, here in South Carolina, we have a U.S. district judge that was appointed by Barack Obama. We have a U.S. district magistrate who is an Iranian national that was appointed by Barack Obama. And our senator rubber-stamped every nominee, including the five nominees that were not paying taxes, including Tim Ratner, who was our treasurer, our U.S. treasurer, had not paid taxes for three years, but Lindsay voted for him. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate that. That that's a, I mean, that, we could do an entire show on the opinions people have about presidents deciding who their nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court is going to be, and what the role is of the U.S. Senate buys and consent. I mean, what the interpretation you have of advise and consent. I mean, I, I'm probably out of the conservative mainstream when I say I think a president earns the right to choose his nominee 
and it's not the Senate's job to get the judicial philosophy or ideology or your interpretation. I mean, I, I guess you got to have an adherence to the Constitution, but there are a lot of different interpretations of the Constitution. And I just think that the president earns the right to nominate who he or she chooses to, and the Senate plays a minimal role. Are they qualified? Or are they, do they understand what the Supreme Court's about? I mean, I understand you've got a lot of modern interpretations and you've got a lot of um, liberal legal theories there. When you elect a liberal president, guess what? Odds are he nominates a liberal Supreme Court justice. Enjoy your day. We'll, um, we'll have at it again tomorrow.